And the motion picture is the most important art film ever devised by the human race. It is the, the art form that creates more empathy than any other. It creates our ability to step out of our own shoes. Hello and welcome to The Great Movies Podcast, a retrospective film review show where we watch and discuss the movies covered in Roger Ebert's seminal film essay collections, The Great Movies. I'm Dylan Quayer, and today we are joined by, I can now say, returning guest. Friend of the show. Reoccurring guest. Friend of, true friend of the pod, <laughs> Stephen Gillespie. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm, I'm doing good, thank you. I, I, I found out that I get brought on a particular niche, and I don't know how I come across to the listener, but I enjoy that. Is it movies where creatures take dominance over humans i guess so i guess that's really my vibe and now you've put it that way i don't know what that says about me but i'm going to reflect a lot tonight <laughs> i i think that's the only through line i could match between <laughs> babe and godzilla what so my, 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 my mom my mom listens to this podcast she's she's very nice hi. that way hi mom um and uh when i said that the the british dude from the godzilla movies was gonna come on and do babe she was like, what What do those have in common? Why? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. They're family films in general. If you take out certain Godzilla movies, I think in general you could say a fair amount of the Godzilla movies are sort of family movies. I, I think actually what, what, what I find in common with them is a very broad thing. And it's why I think I've become, in certain circles, in a way that confuses me, weirdly synonymous um, with both Godzilla and Babe, especially Babe 2. Look, you, um, you can't say it's weird when that is like your main talking point, it seems like. <laughs> True, it's most of what I talk about. <laughs> but I just, I don't know, I think it comes from this like joint love of taking a thing seriously and wanting to give it critical attention when it's not being given that thing and it's been very much maligned and like these films that are often given like very reductionist takes or written out of wider conversations especially canonical conversations which i believe are films of great worth that people want to besmirch and i like to as i know you do um, be the voice in the room saying you know what these movies are really good i wish them seriously because they're good movies join me on the wolfgang peterson's troy podcast coming up never <laughs> ever i would have to watch troy <laughs> i've not watched troy is it a bad movie? Yeah. Is it a movie I like a lot? Definitely. So um, where in the Great Movies book does um, do these movies appear? <laughs> well, I mean, Troy, never. Uh, Babe, never. But I will say, Raj, our boy Raj, uh, fan of Babe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Babe 1, 3 out of 4, positive review. And then Babe 2, he came in hot. He is... Yes. Four out of four, masterpiece. Well, well, yeah, and 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 to link to apparently I'm the guy that brings up Gene Siskel on this podcast, which after the last time and the Gamma <laughs> connection, but yeah, um, Gene Siskel very famously or infamously um, labeled Babe to the best film of 1998. Was he um, wrong? And received no, I don't think he's wrong at all. Um, and he received a lot of blowback for that. But he even, like, in a statement saying, 1998, a year in which there were many good films, Babe 2 is the best. And I'm like, yeah, no, I actually agree. And I, it's, I think people think I'm joking when I say this, but no, I agree. Babe 2, the best from 1998. Um, I don't think Babe is the best from the, of the year that it came out, but I think that Babe 2 is. Let's see. Um, how many movies would I put above Babe? I'd put Truman Show. I'd mm, put... I'd rather watch Babe. <laughs> I'd put Dilse. I've I'd... not seen that. Maybe it's better than Babe. I'd put The Big Lebowski. Yes. Over Babe 2. Over Babe 2? No. 
Oh, sorry, I'm going through 98 right now. Okay. Oh, God, that's... I feel bad saying that, but realistically, I think I would take Babe 2. I mean, both are masterpieces, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, Rushmore, I think, gives it a lot of competition. I hate Rushmore. Okay, well, you're wrong. That's fine. <laughs> um, a I... Simple Plan is a great movie, but it's not that good. Uh, Thin Red Line, I think, could compete with Babe. That is a movie I have not seen, uh, but I know I should have done. Um, I do think the best film of 1998, and maybe you now agree with this and you haven't realized it, is uh, Theo Angelopoulos's Eternity and a Day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, maybe. Um, that is an absolute wonderful movie. Um, but, you know, my scrappy little underdog wants to go for the pig movie. Sure, um, sure. I, yeah, I understand. Re- real- realistically, I think you're right. Eternity and a Day is probably the best film that came out that year. It's the best film that came out a- that decade, maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's an absolute masterpiece. Um, this, was a, level. this was a pretty good year for quote-unquote family films. They also had Mulan and The Parent Trap came out mm. this year, which I think are both, like, really excellent. S- small Soldiers as well, which is a little kind I haven't of, like, seen underrated. Small Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, the other one I was going to mention is sort of the quote-unquote forgotten but quote-unquote hipster choice. Right. Uh, Brave Little Toaster Goes to it. Mars is pretty good. I was sure you were going to say Spice World. I haven't seen Spice World, but I've heard Spice World <laughs> is a very fun movie. Oh, Ants came out this year, if you want to be a Woody Allen head. Oh, uh, not a great thing to be. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, I of course. age out of. Oh, oh, we cannot forget The Land Before Time 6, The Secret of Source Rock. See, that's why, unfortunately, we were, a, a, a good friend of mine and a friend of the pod was, was supposed to be joining us, but then he was halfway through watching Babe and his, his parents just turned up um, with a surprise visit. Um, but um, Jack Davenport has watched recently every single Land Before Time movie. Oh, um, I've been re- wanting to go do- and try to watch them all again because those are all buried in my childhood and I remember very little of all of them. Yeah, he is running a one-person campaign to because he's he's a musician in his own right, and he wants to do the soundtrack to the next one. Oh dang! Go for it, man. Go <laughs> Jack. Happen, but I, but I support that. So you know, if anyone's listening from whoever owns Land Before Time, um, yeah, Jack Davenport should do your soundtrack for not the next one because it's being made, but the one after. Thank you very much. Also, it looks like the original Pokemon movie came out this year. Um, so yeah, welcome to the podcast where we talk about other movies that came out the true. same year as the movies that we're here to discuss. So, as you said, um, Siskel m- named this movie number one, and he mentioned, I think, the not the movies we just mentioned that are our favorites, but some of the uh, the more acclaimed films out of mm. 1998 that he put Babe to The Pig in the City above. Um, specifically, Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line, and... Uh, Shakespeare in Love. Mm. So I'm curious to take your opinion on Saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare in Love, real quick. Uh, I, I, I see. This is this is where my status as a guest becomes uncomfortable because I feel like you, as host, can can say all kinds of outlandish opinions. Um, but you know, I am in a more tenuous state. Saving Private Ryan is a film I don't like very much. Um, I think the beginning is superb, um, unbelievably superb, um, and I think the final sequence before the kind of like. I mean, by the beginning, I mean, because there's the wrapping device, isn't there, of the visiting the grave? Mm-hmm. I don't mean that bit. I mean the um, the D-Day landing, which is mm-hmm. um, superb. And I mean the final confrontation at the end, which is superb. And I think everything between is just drawn out and is melodramatic and focuses on a... It may be based somewhat in real life, but it is... I don't like films about um, the war 
that seem to obfuscate the real kind of like reason for war and seem and actually deal with um, the fight against fascism and the reality of fascism. Um, it just like goes into just like military sadness, and I'm not a big fan of military sadness. Um, but then again, I have not watched it for a while, but it's not a film I've wanted to return to. And Shakespeare in Love is just shit. Well, I do not like Shakespeare in Love, but I don't like Saving Private Ryan either. So we're we're in good terms there. Okay. Um, I find okay. Saving Private Ryan to be, um, well, for one, I struggle with a lot of war movies sort of in a similar way where it's like these were real life things where people died for causes of nationalism that usually didn't need to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't need to see that portrayed on screen. It's something I'm just generally uncomfortable with. Um, especially when it's just sort of like war porn and sad war porn. And that's most of Saving Private Ryan, including the very impressive beginning sequence, but I have no interest in uh, interacting with it at all. I think the verisimilitude of the, the opening sequence of Samurai Ryan is important because I feel mm-hmm. because that's an event that's so talked about and so venerated to see it actually shown to an audience in a realistic way that does somewhat strip away the myth because there is a mythologizing and heroizing the idea of the D-Day landing as such an important turning point of the war. And it, it very much was mm-hmm. about realizing what that means for the people that were there and those that died and those that struggled. So I feel because of the history that we live in and and unavoidably live in i think seeing it put on screen properly is a very important way of doing that um because there are so many bloody video games like your medal of honors that redo that and and do the worst thing by doing that um but yeah for the rest of it i'm, I'm very much with you of there's that sense of here is just war fan fiction and i'm yeah. not there for war fan fiction yeah and i think if you want a good movie that contrasts that i think thin red line works very well I need to watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, I've not gone around to. I go hot and cold on Malik, um, and I'm ready to love a Malik movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm notorious on this podcast for uh, really hating Oliver Stone. Are you in the same boat as me? If that's not your thing, I, I don't think I've seen enough Oliver Stone movies to, to really have a comment. Um, Mainly Platoon. What I do you think of see, Platoon? And that's about to say the ones I did see I watched too long ago that I think my critical faculties have changed somewhat. Like, I would have watched Platoon at university, and that's been, like, close to a decade now, because it was, like, first year of uni when I watched Platoon with my housemates, and I remember thinking it was good, but it's not a film where I can remember anything of apart from the Mimi scenes. Um, So I have no Mm -hmm. idea how I'd respond to that film again. And, like, Natural Born... Is Natural Born Killers Oliver Stone? Yes. I mean, and that's a film, again, that I remember watching a long time ago and liking... Um, but I don't know how I'd respond to it again now. Mm-hmm. Um, is he Wall Street as well? Yep. I don't like that movie very much because no. I think that's a classic example of it's it plays to both audiences, and I think this might be my Oliver Stone problem, as it is with many, in quote, political filmmakers, of they make art which can still appeal to people who are very much against the thing the film technically stands for, and the amount of people who unironically like love the greed is good speech, I think shows that film failed yep. um, in very key ways. And I think I think the same about Wolf Wall Street, to be honest, as well. Um, not a defender of that film in, in any way. Well, of that sense of I can now say that you're wrong on something because that that's a good movie. <laughs> but I, I despise that film. It's one of the worst ones I've ever seen. Well, okay. I wish Nick was here to uh, give a give a full throated response to that, but uh, yeah, lo- lots of good movies out of '98. Mothra um, mm. Three. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, is, is it a hot take to say that Saving Private Ryan wasn't the best Tom Hanks movie that year because You've Got Mail came out and You've Got Mail is excellent? I mean, I'm ready to support You've Got Mail. Again, I haven't seen it, but I will, I will believe you on that because, you know, again, Saving Private Ryan, I'll kick it while it's down. Is You've Got Mail problematic? Yeah. I think I've heard it that it is, um, and it's not been a film that I felt the need to watch for that reason. Should I watch it? I I, I still enjoy it. I, I will understand and discuss its problems. I... I don't know. There, there's something with Nora Ephron movies that just kind of hooks me. Her sort of charm and her writing and her direction. Um, I like that, though, because I feel like that, that fits into the niche that we're carving out here of that idea of there are certain people who, like, film crit or, like, film Twitter or, like, whatever, want to kind of, like, malign or seem as lesser and that don't get those things where I reckon there are a lot of, like, renowned filmmakers, and I'm going to include, like, Oliver Stone in that, who make films with, like, very deeply problematic elements that there is that need that you still have to have watched um, and still need to talk about, even if they have edges we don't want to engage with. Yet uh, people are much more quicker to write off Nora Ephron as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there is a very gendered element to that of men are oh, allowed God, to be yeah. complicated. Um, and men are allowed to make things with harsh edges because that makes it textured. Whereas if a woman makes a film that has a misstep, then their career is killed. Yeah. Um, luckily, Nora Ephron's career wasn't like killed. Um, I mean, critically killed, maybe. Like, it, think, it, like, it didn't maybe hit the fulfill... I don't think it fulfilled what she could have done if she mm. had as much uh, studio help behind her and critical sort of support. Um, at least she made Julie and Julia, and that's a masterpiece. So, good, good on her. Um, we, we, we are starting with Babe today, though. So, actually, if, if, mm. if we had this discussion of 98 films and where Babe sort of, too sort of fit in with it... Um, I'm I'm pulling up the '95 movie list, um, and and bef- I, I, right. I, I in general we sort of give our thoughts up front. So you you uh, rewatched Babe for the first time in how mm. long? God, I don't know. For the first time since watching it on VHS as a child, um, okay. it was one of the hard rotation films in my house. So I cannot have been very old at all. Because when when all right when did um, Harry Potter come out? The first Harry Potter film. '98. 99 I all right because that would have been that was the first dvd that we bought okay um so at that point i guess we were starting to watch films on dvd and i never had babe on dvd so the last one I watched babe must have been before then okay okay that's fair um so i'm actually kind of the opposite of you i've rewatched babe um not not as much as you rewatch babe pig in the city <laughs> but um like i've seen babe a few times over the years since i was a kid Mm. Uh, I hadn't seen Babe, uh, Pig in the City since I probably saw it once at a blockbuster video sort of rental thing. Um, so we'll kind of get into like my reaction mm. to that, but I, I want to ask you up front what ha- what was your general reaction to Babe having not seen it for a while? Well, I don't know. I've made somewhat of a brand of myself, which I I have this semi-ironic relationship with Babe Two, where I do think it's a generally brilliant film, but I'm also aware that it's very funny to be like, I love Babe Two. Oh, um, sure. So I'm aware of I'm aware of the irony there, and part of that, part of my brand around that, is being like besmirching Babe One <laughs> and telling people they don't need to watch Babe One, they need to watch just Babe Two because Babe Two is so cool. Um, so, to both. <laughs> I, I I know, but it's part of the gag. Um, I get so, it. I get it. I was going back to Babe 1 being like, oh god, what if Babe 1 is actually better than Babe 2? Because I've not watched it for a long time. So I was quite concerned. And at the beginning, there's a really emotive bit at the beginning. I'm like, this one's beautiful. There's a really bit early on um, where Babe expresses like a fear about parentage. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so this this pig has been taken from his family. There's a very well done opening about like from a pig's eye view of what the slaughter of pigs looks like. Did, and, did like, okay? They... Did that scene remind you of any other movie? Gunda. Hmm. That wasn't what I thought of. Um... <laughs> gonna throw up my gun. There you go. Gonna throw up my most highfalutin reference. <laughs> um, maybe it's because I did on the podcast recently, but it reminded me a lot of the opening of ET, where there are these human characters sort of running around in shadow. You don't see their faces. You mainly see mm. what their hands are doing, and I don't know. It it, it gave me that sort of Spielberg vibe um, from ET. Yeah, I, I feel it's really hard for him to pull off, though, isn't it? Like a, because I think Babe does do this. Like, there's the thing said about Spielberg of he makes very good films when he when he made good films back in the day yeah. of uh, approximating a, a childhood's perspective and giving a child's view of the world, which is a very hard thing to do in film, and I think it's a thing that films mess up quite frequently. I watched um, the Reflecting Skin recently because it's leaving Criterion. And that is a film that claims to be a view into harsh events from a child's view in a very much like Spirit of the Beehive is. It's very much one. Oh, I love Spirit of the Beehive. Because it's phenomenal. And this film wants to be that film and just doesn't really make any sense. Whereas I think Babe is very, very good at straight away positioning you with a character, with a way of looking at the world and of aligning you to that. And it plays with you as a human know exactly what's going on, but knowing that Babe does not know what's going on is very, very powerful. And it shows you how you should view the narrative and it opens your mind to begin with. And then I like that it takes it from there to that scene where he is asking if he has parents mm-hmm. and his first ask if his parents aren't there. And I was really emotional at that point. I was like, man, this movie's going to just destroy me. And then it never really mentions that again for the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so would that be an overall positive reaction to that or... Um... I would say, ironically, relief, because I was, like, ready to be like, damn, what if Babe 1 is better than Babe 2? Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> God forbid if there's a good movie out there. I, I've tied a lot of my personality I at this know. point to Babe 2. <laughs> but I'm going to give you hell for every time you uh, you uh, besmirch Babe 1, because I will be the Babe really 1 it. fan of the two of us. I really liked Babe 1, um, going back to watch it. I really, really liked it. Um, and I was also surprised how strange it was because in my in my head babe one was a very normal film that had a it very avant-garde sequel is i mean and the, the, the step up of weirdness from one to two is there it is and, and, and that still is the case but i noticed more of babe two makes a lot more sense to me watching babe one um, because i feel like there is this this slightly off-kilter sensibility to the entire film that it never quite leans into, but it's always there. Like, everything is slightly cartoonish, slightly mm-hmm. strange, slightly step-removed. And it now makes more sense to me why George Miller went from that to that. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. When it previously did not. Because I do I do think, like, as a narrative work, because it's based on a children's book by Dick Kingsmith, a good book that I read as a child, there is that sense of it has very pedestrian, and I mean that in a positive way, source material to adapt. But there is a... A dynamism to the craft, which just is so much more in the second. Sure. Um, well, before before we really get into Babe One, I do I do want to discuss the '95 of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what would some of like your favorite films that would compete with Babe be from this year? Well, I, I'm not very good at remembering what comes out in what year, so you'll have to throw some films at me, and I'll just see if the listener despises my views now that I've made my controversial Scorsese claims. <laughs> All right, I, I'll go. I'll go down a list of. I, I have it ordered by my favorites, and then I'll kind of mention some of the more popular ones that I don't read so much. Uh, Toy Story. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't like to talk about Joss Whedon, um, but Toy Story is a great movie. Masterpiece. Clueless. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, Clueless is the best Jane Austen adaptation ever made. And that is 100% correct. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's it's unbelievably good. Um, Clueless is a film that I, I remember uh, my partner Emma had some friends around our house uh, a long time ago. Um, and we wanted to watch a movie and I was there being like mm, I want to watch a serious movie because I'm a serious man um, and they were like let's put Clueless on I'm like I don't want to watch Clueless what the hell is this and luckily they went with it and I think I enjoyed it more than anyone in the room combined <laughs> I, I mean you I'm assuming you have some sort of degree in English literature and then you teach English literature correct? yeah I teach I teach English literature yes my degree is in philosophy so it's it's tangentially correct okay okay uh, that's uh, fair links but I'm I'm assuming that Clueless hits so close to home then, if that is sort it's, of where your interests come from. Yeah, it's just, it's, I like films that are just, to use like modern language, that don't have to go that hard, that don't have to be that clever and don't have to be like that far <laughs> above their audience. And Clueless is just so aware of the genre conventions of both the teen movie, but also of the Jane Austen novel. And understands and the way, like the similarities mm, of those conventions and blends it. Yeah. It doesn't need to be that clever. It doesn't need to be that funny. It doesn't need to be that wry and self-aware. It could just be another just teen film. And I like other just teen films. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it, it, it goes directions that I did not think that it would. And it's it's so funny and so literate, cine-literate and John, and um, literary literate. And Elisa Silverstone didn't have to give like the best performance of 95 in that movie. Mm. She's wild. Better than, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, may, maybe apart from James Cromwell, but you know. We'll get to that. Um... <laughs> Whisper of the Heart. Have you ever seen that one? I have not. Um, I have not. I need to. I know I need to. Todd Haynes Safe. I like that movie. It's good. Great movie. Uh, Crimson Tide, which, hey, that was not the seen. last podcast we had. I, I listened to part of a podcast about it and then went, I should watch this movie. So yeah, it, It's good. Um, Godzilla vs. Deso Troya. Oh, one of the best Godzilla movies. Better than Babe. Better than Babe. Okay. Seven. Mm. I mean, I, I use this phrase a lot. The less 17 I get, the less I like a lot of those kind of movies. Yeah, um, yeah. But when I was 17, Seven and Fight Club were my favourite movies in the world. Oh, sure. Um, and, you know, now that I'm a 29-year-old, I feel very removed from that. But I think there is something to be gained from it, a it's film still... that speaks so strongly to that kind of person is still very impressive. Yeah, and it's and it's and David Fincher still executes the heck out of it, so... Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's one of his best. It's definitely one of his best. Yeah. Uh, Before Sunrise is also here. This is a oh, really good movie here. I like Before yeah. Sunset more, but Before Sunrise is still um, exceptional. I very subjectively, I know everything's subjective, like Before Sunrise the most because I had such a unique experience watching that film in a way that I've never watched before. Because oh, okay. I watched it during a summer when I was the exact same age as those characters and uh, I've never felt a film more being like, these people are saying the things that I'm thinking and are feeling the things that I'm feeling. And I've never felt that closely aligned to something being shown to me mm-hmm. to the extent that I was like, I should wait eight years to watch the next movie. Um, <laughs> I was almost tend to be like, you know what? I should just do wait and do this because it was such... Unfortunately, the film was too good. So I had to watch the next two. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I almost... I, I've never felt as closely aligned with a film just like serendipitously just, oh, this is my age. And I also was in France with my parents at the time, so I'm like, here I am in a oh, different country. Oh, that's perfect. Um, my, my, my parents live in France, um, so I was there visiting them. We watched it together, and I was just like, that film just spoke to me. Like, no film has spoken to me ever. Um, yeah. So yeah, good movie. Good movie. Um, Heat, Michael Mann's Heat. Great movie. Great movie. Uh, talking about um, 
I don't remember if it's a Jane Austen adaption, but is Jane Austen sense and sensibility, or is that a yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, if good. it's something and something, you know, Fast and Furious sense and sensibility, it's all Jane Austen. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, excellent movie. Ang Lee is awesome. I've not seen it. Um, I am constantly enamored by the eclectic filmography of Ang Lee. I'm obsessed with his filmography. I um, love Ang Lee. Uh, yeah, I, I need to watch more of his films. I've watched a lot of his heavy hitters and I've never got around to Sense Sensibility. It's very because good. I'm the weirdest kind of book nerd. Um, as a very kind of like, I don't know, I'm not really a very rebellious person at all. Um, <laughs> very like, very middle class white dude. Um, my dad's favourite author of all time is Jane Austen. And you know, you know what, what boys like? Competition with fathers. So my one way that I've stuck it to my dad is refusing to read a Jane Austen book. Wow. Um... <laughs> so... There's actually a third Jane Austen adaption movie, quote unquote, uh, which is the mm-hmm. Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. If you've I've ever seen watched, that. good, good adaption. Um, yeah, sexy uh, man comes comes out of a fountain. Yes, filmed a lot of it. Chatsworth, Chatsworth is a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the last one that I'd consider a personal masterpiece for me on here is Bridges of Madison County, which is maybe the only Clint Eastwood movie I adore besides Unforgiven. Yeah, I, I read a really fantastic review of that on Letterboxd from the River Jordan recently, um, who made me want to watch it, and I am not a fan of Clint Eastwood. I do love Unforgiven. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's those two, and then the rest are just from meh to this is racist and bad. Yeah, I liked his second movie, High Plains Drifter. I liked High Plains Drifter a lot. Mm. I, I, his third movie, most of the mehs are his westerns from his earlier time, which are like, there's better, but... It's okay. Yeah. And then there's stuff like Gran Torito and J. Edgar. And, and yeah, an, an American Sniper, which is just horrific. Oh, God. Um, yeah. But some of the other major movies that came out this year, Apollo 13. Uh, usual, yeah, fine. Usual Suspects. Not a film to rewatch, obviously. Uh, Braveheart. Never seen. Looks bad. Dead Man Walking. No idea what that is. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, the American president. Good for him. <laughs> Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels. I haven't seen that. So have not seen one of the. Uh, yeah, I, that's. I've seen a lot of Wong Kar Wai and love Wong Kar Wai. Um, so I'm, I bet I would love. That's the movie that was going to be part of Chunking Express, isn't it? And then was broken off I into think a separate. So. Film. Um, yeah. Other like great auteur movies that I haven't seen yet. Also, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Yeah, I love Jim Jarmusch, um, but that is one that I have not seen. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. Yeah, again, love... God, I sound like I've seen her movies. Um, hey, I like Catherine Bigelow a lot, but I have not seen Strange Days. Um, um, I like her, her... Her early films are so good. Emir Kustika's uh, The Underground. Ooh, that film rules. I, I've heard it, I've heard it's very good. That film rules so much. That's such, that is... That I have seen nothing like that movie. It is okay, so your cool. reaction right now is making me just, like, want to put this on my high-priority watch list now. It's a film I remember like writing about it. I'm like, I don't know enough about the history because I know there are some films that I've watched. And I'm like, I know that stuff in here is bad and politically I'm uncomfortable. And I don't know enough about the history that film's playing with to have an actually informed read. So I would not be surprised if someone said, actually, Stephen, this film's too problematic. It's blah, blah, blah. So take that with a pinch of salt mm-hmm. um, because it's a very complex thing that I should know more about and don't. But taken on its own terms, which is an improper thing to do, but what I had to do... It's such a fascinating film. Okay. And like the ways it deals with representation of conflict and what that means and the ways it deals with like political rebellion and what that means and how you can use it. It's it's yeah, it's so cool. 
there's also Clutch of Bros La Ceremony. Have you seen mm-hmm. that? Paul mm-hmm. Verohaven's Showgirls. <gasps> <laughs> that was the that evilest the laugh I've ever seen. heard. Oh, God. Man, if that movie didn't have the last 20 minutes, it would be like a So Bad It's Good camp masterpiece. And then there is a... Um, so, content warning. There is a a really horrible scene of sexual assault um, that does not belong in that film and is handled very, very badly and, like, takes away its, like, cold appeal as a... What a, what a hilarious, fun movie this is. It's okay. All right. Uh, lots of people on Letterboxd that I follow give it a 5 out of 5. Um, so I'm always... I, I almost got that, but... No. Okay. And I I don't think I could be allowed back on this podcast without mentioning my co-host Jana's one, two of her favorite movies, Empire Records, if you've seen that. I've watched the first 20 minutes of it and liked it and never got back to it. And most especially Sorry. Sandra Bullock's While You Were Sleeping. I mean, it sounds creepy. Um... <laughs> it is. <laughs> At least I've from the plot that. description. It's like a... Let me let me just read the the letterbox summary. A transit worker pulls commuter Peter off a railway track after he's mugged, but while he's in a coma, his family mistakenly thinks she's Peter's fiance, and she doesn't correct them. Things get more complicated when she falls in love for his brother, who's not quite sure that she cl- who she claims to be. That sounds like an Almodovar movie. It's a John Turtletub movie. I know, I know it's not an Amadovar movie, but it, it it gives me those vibes um, mm-hmm. in the sense of, hmm. and I love Amadovar, but there's a sense of me being like, maybe you shouldn't be playing with these pieces, Pedro. Uh, <laughs> you play with them well, but they're the wrong pieces to be playing with. That's that's fair. Um, but yeah, so I think we've gotten actually a really good uh, view of your mindset on films that we can, especially around this time period, that we can kind of move into Babe. Yeah. Uh, we definitely talked a little bit about the opening. Uh, the one thing we kind of skipped in the opening is how Babe goes from slaughterhouse to farm life. Mm. Um, and there is a... Uh, he didn't what choose it, the farm life. The farm life chose him. Mm. Uh, literally, as uh, he is in a state fair or a county <laughs> fair or something. Because yeah, the actual weighing the pig joke is a very funny, like, semi-visual gag that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, James Cromwell picks up Babe, and mm. he guesses the weight, and he, he guesses correctly. I think there's a great line when he picks up Babe, though, and it's like, as they stared into their eyes, they realized a common destiny between them, and I'm like... <laughs> I think Ebert mentions this, I don't know if it's about that line, but a lot of he mentions that a lot of the narrator lines, he's like, why is this in a Babe movie? This is like... what. Again, to get ahead of myself, this is why I love Babe 2 so much. Of, Like, it, it doubles down on that. Everyone in Babe 2 speaks in this just, like, overwritten, florid way that is just so theatrical and so strange. And Babe 1 leans into that with the narration and not enough elsewhere. But everyone is always saying the most ridiculous kind of, like, high register things. And I love it so much. Yeah. Um, it's it's really good. And I, I, I really enjoy those sort of line readings. Um mm. We do immediately get a pee joke. as We do. It's a good pee joke. It is a pretty good pee joke, as uh, Babe pees on James Cromwell. Yeah, because he's weighing the pig, and he's like, oh, it's five ounces. Oh, make that two. And it's like, that's, that's, that's good, because he's got heavy weight. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so Cromwell wins the, wins the pig. And... Mm. Uh, the pig. Yep. He, he gets the pig. And... There's a lot of meeting of the other animals at the farm. We can kind of go through them one by one. There's uh, Fly and Rex, the border collies. Uh, yeah. Um, they're sort Rex of the ad- is Hugo Weaving, right? Heck yeah, he is. 
Yeah, God, really I love good Hugo, Hugo Weaving. Mm. How could you not love Hugo Weaving? He's the best. He is the best. And uh, Miriam Margoyles is Fly, which... She's very good. Um, Steven should know as... Uh, what is her name? Professor... God, I can't even make an early Harry Potter joke now because I can't remember. But she's the gardener teacher. Oh, oh God. See, I'm going to be annoyed if it's, it's not Filch. No, no it's not. No, Filch but, is the caretaker. No. <laughs> I, more and more, I'm glad that my memory of Harry Potter now fails me because, as everyone knows, J.K. Rowling is absolutely trash. Yeah, um, she is. I, so. I still enjoy Harry Potter, but... Uh doesn't mean I yeah, want to... And again, this goes back to our previous conversation. It is, it is totally okay to have issues with things outside of them and inside of them um, and still find the good things in them because I think that... Um, Sprout. Press Sprout. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, there are certainly things in those Harry Potter books as well that are deeply uncomfortable. But there's a line in there. It's great. One of the two characters in uh, the Harry Potter movies from the House of Hufflepuff that get like any speaking role at all... Uh, just completely forgotten house by uh, everyone there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so she uh, she plays uh, Fly, and Hugo mm-hmm. Weaving plays Rex. They're sort of the adoptive parents, and um, Fly is like the doting mother, and Rex is like the I-have-no-emotions father. <laughs> yeah, which, which is the beginning of this film's flirtation with its key theme, which is the idea of traditionalism. Um, mm-hmm. And it's cool that, uh, that a children's movie or a family film has this key theme that it does articulate throughout of very much the Rex is he flirts with questioning tradition and then doubles down on tradition. And so he is there from the beginning of being like, oh, I, I will accept this pig into my family, but it's not how things are done. Yeah. So it's it's a good setup for that theme to be flirted with throughout. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like Rex is a pretty well-developed character as the movie goes on. One of the one of the better ones throughout the movie. Uh, yeah, and I will agree that I think this film has stronger um, character arcs than the second one. I, um, yeah, it's probably true. Um, mainly because it relies on less characters, maybe? That they get a little yeah, bit and, more Yeah, and it's time. a character-focused story in the way that the, the, the second one is not. Uh, yeah. This is, like, about few characters forming together. So it's, it's a bit of an unfair comparison, but it is a satisfying film for that reason. Mm-hmm. The only other really main uh, animal characters we get are Ma... Who is the? Oh, old, she's so great. She is the old sheep on the farm, mm. and uh, I'm assuming your favorite, Ferdinand the White oh, Duck. Ferdinand, Ferdinand the Duck is a hero, and is even better in the sequel. He is even. I mean, he's the only like carryover character into the sequel. So, uh, and the mice, thank you. Oh, that's right. That's right. The we mice need... who are pretty good in Babe One and are exceptional in Babe Two. Yeah, I mean, they get better songs to sing in Babe Two. That's kind of the thing. They do. They do. Um, and uh, they get a little bit more character in how they announce the title cards. <laughs> yes. We'll get to that. Um, oh, we'll get to the greatest moment of cinema ever soon, yes. We, we, we'll we have to, like, power rank their uh, title card reading in uh, songs. But... Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I, I don't know enough of them. But anyway, uh, so yeah, that's kind of the farm in general of the mm. main characters. Uh, the first half of Babe is very vignette and doesn't really have much development besides uh the the main sort of the first main scene we yeah. get is ferdinand sort of explaining to babe the sort of cultural tradi- traditions where like he is supposed to be eaten yes and uh he doesn't really want to tell babe he is 
supposed to be eaten as well. But he he's sort of like egging Babe, like you need to be a little bit more than what people think of you as. Um, and one way he does this is uh, by pretending to be a rooster. So he gets a mm. job on the farm and he's more than just food to the humans. But the humans don't take this very well and are very annoyed by Ferdinand the Duck. Um, and they replace him with an alarm clock. <laughs> and there's this great scene where Ferdinand and Babe have to uh, steal the alarm clock. Oh, it doesn't go very well. Um, Babe ends up full Pierre Le Fou, just covered in blue paint. <laughs> and caused a, a bit of a mess in the process. So, which leads to our first example where the film like takes its stance of being like, no, we have experimented with leaving our lanes. We must stay in our lanes. Certain animals can only do certain things because like Rex gives a telling off for going yeah. into the house. Rex basically says word for word what you just uh, responded with. So, yeah, uh, he, actually, I wrote down the exact quote: "Accept what you are and be thankful for it." That's really interesting. I, I, I do feel this film does have some interesting territory and I was reading some reviews of it at the time and the thing they kept going back to, I could not agree with more, of like the strength of Babe and why it is an enduring family film is that it speaks to all of its audiences quite clearly. Like it, it speaks to children and it mm-hmm. speaks to adults, um, but it doesn't condescend any of them and it doesn't speak to them separately. No, There is that sense that's of a... the things that it is saying are resonant and that's so hard to do. That's a really great point. Um... Yeah, wow. Um, I I think another really good scene of that is um, they kind of mention the changing of the seasons and people growing up. And uh, one thing is like the puppies of Fly and Rex Mm. get sold and Fly just kind of has to stand there and watch as as Lori would say in Little Women. Um, (laughs) Sorry, as uh, her uh, her children get taken away by other people. Yeah, it's sad. And, and, yeah, and, and this brings me back to another thing that was, and this again, I'm going to be pretentious to link this to recent film Gunda, which I know like hardly anyone has seen, but it is a fabulous film. So if you, I'll describe it to the audience briefly because I know it's not very well known. Um, so a documentary that I don't think it's totally out yet. I watched it at the Glasgow Film Festival, which they did. Um, streaming so i'm not sure what its release is like but it is a black and white documentary about a farmyard um but it is a completely uninterventionist documentary so there is no human presence at all um the camera just follows the animals around and animalizes them um so there is no anthropomorphizing there is no intrusive presence and like that spielberg thing is Spielberg dropping down the camera to the child's level your camera is down with the animals and as they go for their things and it does such a great job of animalizing you that you start to see the human as alien and the animal as natural um so it's a great bit when the pig gunda the little the little pig like sees an electric fence and it's very very shocking to you in a way that it would not be normally and there's a great bit when um some chickens are just like walking through a forest but it's not a forest it's just like small little like bracken leaves because you're at their level it reacquaints you to that and like i was reminded of that idea like you know that chickens simply are like some somehow linked to dinosaurs like a, a close relative and you see the way they move and the way you're like yeah the animal kingdom is really really strange and mm-hmm. babe the film to bring it back does such a great job of committing to we're not going to anthropomorphize as animals we're not going to make them like humans we're not going to humanize them to get your emotion. We're going to make you care for them by them conforming to their animal roles. It's not like this blunt... Because it is about prejudice. 
but it doesn't do that thing of being like it's not like a um Zootropolis slash Zootopia, which is the film that I find quite uncomfortable because mm-hmm. of the very on the nose metaphor that is like, I get this is for kids, but think about it for a second, that's not great. So it doesn't try to align animal division to human division, because that is reductive and crass and horrible. It looks at, all right, there are animal divisions, and you're going to care about it for that reason. And the way that it makes you think about animals as animals is really powerful. And that's why that moments like that with um, Fly losing the pups is really interesting. Because it's you don't care because this dog acts like a human, you care because the dog acts like a dog. And against another way that Babe is such a resonant film of... And I was reading about this, like, pork products dropped for, like, 20% or something in the <laughs> year following Babe in the US. So it does such a good job of making you actually care about animals, um, which which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my main notes is sort of how you're describing the animal's presentation in this movie, is this movie, unlike almost every other talking animal movie, including... Babe 2, which was a little bit part of my problem with Babe 2, is I could believe that these animals are doing this in the real world. Like... Did you look up into how they did it? It's fascinating. I, 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 so I usually go through like the Wikipedia stuff um, before the movie, and there was barely inter- in, any information. Um, but what, what I more mean is like, there's a scene where there are people stealing the sheep um... In Farber Haggett's, uh, like, crop, uh, mm. pasture. Um, and Babe basically runs back and tells Fly they're stealing the sheep. Fly yeah. then goes and gets, uh, Farmer Haggett and convinces Farger, Father Haggett to go to the pen and try and at least stop some of the sheep from being stolen. Me describing that seems like. It would never happen in real life. Like, like that's yeah. There's, there's like five steps there. It seems complicated, there, that's, and it's wholly unrealistic, and it's beyond the communication of most animals. But the way it happens is sort of like Babe sort of runs up to the fence, and then you see mm. Fly kind of like react to Babe and run and just start barking like crazy until Farmer Hoggett gets into his car and starts driving. He's like, "Oh, there's a problem." Yeah, all that could be believable that that could happen like with my dog. Being like, there's yeah, yeah. something weird in the house, come follow me. Yeah, I think that goes back to the anthropomorphizing thing of it. Like, this film realises that, actually, no, humans and animals do have a connection that exists between humans and animals, and we don't need to humanise animals to get that. And you're right, that scene is so good at that, because it gets us that sense of unspoken communication, of trusting another thing because it has instincts, mm-hmm. and we like animals not because they are human, but because they are not human, because they do things that we don't do, and they have senses that we don't have, um, and it's the difference. And because this is a film, this is a film about celebrating difference, um, which is really cool. I read another review about it that I really disagreed with, that said it's a film about um, against prejudice. I agree, but it said it's about individualism, and I was like, that is completely wrong. This is not about individualism at all. Mm. It's about individuality, but that is okay. so different. Um, and I feel that's a very like. A dangerous conflation because this film is about how different people help to make a community stronger it's not about individualism in the singular sense it's about be yourself because you being yourself helps others and society is better as a whole when we are truer to ourselves and truer to the collective that's fair i do think there's a sense of individualism in like how babe defines himself as a sheepdog but the message itself in the movie in context you're right, isn't exactly there, if that makes sense. Yeah, because like even him as a sheepdog, why is he a good sheepdog? Because he talks to the sheep. 
because he works alongside with the sheep. So even then there is a degree of like collective identity. Yeah, that's maybe the one time in the movie where my uh, point that like, <laughs> you know, every human and animal interaction here is completely believable. And in, in Babe, it's just like Babe kind of walks up to the sheep and goes, bah, ram you. And then they just sort of <laughs> walk around. Gross. And uh, I, I'm sure like that that is completely unbelievable. But But, but everything else in that movie is... I could believe that this would be a human-animal or animal-to-animal even interaction. Mm. Um, yeah. So... Can we, when... can we talk about the special effects, though? Because I think the special effects... Because I did do some digging around that it took a while to find, but it was really, really interesting. Well, on the credits here, it did say Jim Henson Creature Shop, so I assume that's mm. part of it. That is part of it. So, like, so it, this also gets us the weird production history of Babe about whose film is it. And this is very contentious. Oh Did you read some of the quotes about it? It makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah. Like, because like, this is directed by Chris Noonan, um, but produced and co-written, because Chris Noonan is also the writer, adapted the Dick King Smith novel um, by George Miller of Mad Max fame. Um, and he got the rights to Babe 10 years before this, but was waiting in that very much like Kubrick or Spielberg way for the technology to catch up with what he wanted Babe to be. So he very much had an idea of Babe in his head. And I was reading about it. He actually, because he is friends with Kubrick, would have long conversations with Kubrick on the phone about how to make a pig movie work, which I just love the idea of that. That he's just phoning up Kubrick and goes, about the pig movie, how to make it work. Um, and Stanley's like, yeah, we need to figure this out, George. <laughs> it's like, yes, and then I'll make AI. We'll do it together. Um, <laughs> So like, so there was that idea of like, and it was only for like Jurassic Park and the like that was like, ah, special effects are there because this is a movie that does use some CG stuff, but it is a blend of real animal, puppetry, and a little bit of CG like top up. Um, so the Jim Henson people there. So like there are 50 pigs that play Babe, for example, yep. um, because they kept growing up, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but when they were making the puppets, they had this idea of they had to make them like actual animals from the inside out. So not just like whatever. So they're like these probably like really complex animatronic things and to make them as animal as possible. And like, this is really like a special effects powerhouse. And the one award that it won at the Oscars um, was for special effects. It was nominated mm -hmm. for quite a few more. Um, and it won elsewhere. It won a Golden Globe, well, I mean, Golden Globes, whatever. But it won for like the best musical comedy um, or whatever that stupid category is called. Um, <laughs> but why the special effects of this film are so good is to go back to what you're saying is, you see an animal talk and you go, yes, that is an animal talking. And like the Lion King doesn't do that. No. And it's just this. I'm assuming you mean the, of... the live action remake. Yeah. I mean, sorry, not the Lion King one. I mean the Lion King, the most recent film called the Lion King. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah, like this, this wonderful combination of like reality, a bit of heightened reality and a little bit of computer to guide it along. It's a really complex process, but it's really cool. There is things to read about it. I'd recommend doing a dive into it because some really groundbreaking stuff here that set the stage for a lot of things we have today. Yeah. And I, th I think like we discussed on the Godzilla podcast, that like the best, Godzilla ever seemed to look is when they sort of combined all mm. a, as as many sort of technological prowesses that they could as far as visual effects went instead of just being like oh let's just CG the animal yeah um yeah um what, one of my favorite lines in the movie comes after this part where Fly has to watch her um pups be sold which is when she's all alone and Babe comes up to her and just says, may I call you mom? Oh, Heartbreaking nice. shit. That's really and, nice. It's a nice movie. What and then nice Fly movie. just reacts by licking him. And that's it. Yeah. 
that scene. That's masterpiece like, scene. Yeah, I like the little. You're right. I do like the little animal animal interactions in this film, which are completely lacking in the second one. But there's that <laughs> moment of like animals being animals at each other because it is a film about animals. Babe Two is not a film about animals. No, and I proto communist societies. I think that's fine. Um, like Babe Two can definitely be a different thing. I think I just sort of prefer the sort of interactions of Babe One, mm. if that makes sense. Um, we also get into a Christmas movie. Uh, mm. Babe sings Jingle Bells, which is, for some reason, one of the first things I think of him doing. Yeah. Um, I should mention, uh, ba- Babe is a him, but it is actually played by a woman. It is played by yeah. Christine Kavanaugh, which you might know as Chucky from the Rugrats. <laughs> um, and then it's also played by a famous Rugrats actress in the second one. I think it's E.G. Daly. I don't have the... Yes, I think so. I think that's the name that came up at the end. Yeah, um... Interesting. Just and, and I think it's interesting that a lot of the actors in this movie are not uh, celebrities. There's Hugo Weaving and Miriam Margolis, but most of these people are uh, they're voice actors. Well, yeah, voice acting is a different thing. I mean, a, a lot of voice actors complain about this, don't they? That it's the deal like a lot of modern animation. They're just like, let's get famous people in the cast. It's like, no, voice acting is a different art, and take it seriously. Just because they're yeah. a good actor doesn't mean they're a good voice actor. You're uh, casting to be them fair, just for their actor voice. I, I do think there is a lot to be said against celebrities just being voice actors, but I do think yeah. there are a lot of great actors that are also really good yes. voice actors. I agree, yeah. It's just def- don't hire someone famous just for your movie because they're famous. Hire yeah. them because they can also do good voice work. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone here does really good voice work. And yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, then in this scene with Christmas... Uh, Farmer Hoggett has to go kill a duck. <laughs> and um, doesn't kill Ferdinand, kills one of Ferdinand's it's a, it's, friends. It's a good bait and switch, though, of like, because they're like gathering at the window watching this duck be served. Yeah. And they're like, oh no. And then Ferdinand also appears. And it's that classic thing being like, wait, we thought you were in there, but you're out <laughs> here. It's a, it's, it's a good gag. It always works. It is a really um, good gag. They're like, what are you guys so sad about? It's like, Ferdinand? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I I. I was I like just out of my mind? But I wrote down here, killing of a sacred duck. <laughs> that I don't know what I was doing. I'm out of my head. Um, okay, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a reference to a movie. Good job. I'm out of my element, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know why, but there is a quite a long ad of a good about fax machines. And this is like yeah. the, the cool technology we can use to communicate to each other with. Which, watching this in t- 2021 is like, pff, fax machines. Well, I don't know, this this, this is where I, I mean, I, I overread everything. So this is where I got into my, like, kind of, like, English lit head of being, like, what what is being said by this, like, rejection of the technology in the house because Hoggett does not want the fax machine in the house. No. And, um, like, this is not an anti-technology film. Um, it is, in fact, it's very much like anti-tradition in sense. So it is, is, is it is in favor of, of progress. But it's also a film that looks at the purpose of progress and like what is it for. Um, so the fax machine is is useful, but it's useful for a different thing later. It's useful to enter Babe into the um, Sheepdog comp- competition. So at that sense of we can't force progress, but we will accept things when they fit, and we will reject them when they don't mm-hmm. fit. We're not just doing things for the sake of it. And that does actually speak in concert to the rest of the film about like when to conform to your role and when to not conform to your role. So that's, I like that. It's clever. Yeah. Um, 
the my favorite piece of technology in the whole movie is James Cromwell's like Wallace and Gromit contraption for a gate, which <laughs> he he just like punches it and it like opens on its own, and it can't go too. F- it, there's it go, this gag goes throughout the entire movie of him like tinkering with the gate to make it like go at the right speed, activate in the right way. It's great. There's so many good storylines in this movie as far, like, even just a little gate thing. Um, we also get a, a really great scene of fireworks here, mm. which uh, is one of the most gorgeous scenes in the movie. In it's both movies. almost as pretty as the stuff in Babe 2. Hey. Uh, it's kind of true. Babe 2 is such a gorgeous movie. Babe 2, like, every inch of it is beautiful. There are bits of Babe 1 that are very nice looking, but Babe 2 mm-hmm. is an exceptionally good looking film. Do you, do you know what sing the song the mice sing? Uh, in the fireworks scene? Oh god, I can't remember. It's uh, Blue Moon. Oh god, of course it is, yes. Which, <laughs> Which I know just makes you... me think of American Werewolf. That's something. Um, what it makes me think of, and I cannot relate to you with this, because as we uh, discussed on the last podcast, you were not a sports fan, but my favorite team is Manchester City, and their official song is Blue Moon. Oh, there you go. They love werewolves. Yeah, uh, they love Greece. <laughs> mm. That's and the other thing. In Portugal. <laughs> they don't don't bring that up. Oh I'm wait, s- they just lost, didn't they? Oh, they did just lose. Oh, I forgot that. Fuck Chelsea. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm a big Chelsea fan now. Take that. Why not? <laughs> Chelsea. <laughs> no, che- the thing about Chelsea is they do have my favorite player in the whole world, and so I'm at least happy he won a Champions League. So oh, good for him. Golo Conte, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure he is. Of course. What what I'm else is Golo Conte doing? Sport. Yeah. yeah, I mean he's just won. So what's he got to do now? Yeah, he's the best. Um, yeah, and uh, there's a really good scene of like sort of the babe seeing the dogs herd the sheep, and he's like, "Huh, I want to do that." <laughs> I, I I like that he gets to sort of choose the role he wants you know? to do. He's like, yeah, you know what? That interests me. If you can see it, you can be it. You know. Yeah. Um, and he's basically hurting them right now to uh, cut their wool, which um, yeah. we just had Christmas. I do not know why. If it's winter time, he's uh, shearing them, but. I'm sure he knows more about this than I do. Yeah, he seems like he knows what he's doing. But then, but then his wife does say that um, Esme does say that he's a strange man. You know, he is a strange man. Um, I, I my letterbox review for Bay One was brief. <laughs> I remember this very, very, very clearly. And intensely unhinged. One of my weirdest <laughs> reviews I've ever done. But it's because of the scene where uh, they shoot this shot. I'm, I'm assuming it's on a soundstage, but they they basically set it in golden hour. Uh, mm. Farmer Hoggett is sort of leaning over a crate and he throws this sheep wool like a blanket just like it's in slow-mo and he like just covers the covers the uh, sort of wagon and I was like and, he, and he's dressed in this like same time like very nice and clean cut like three-piece suit but it's also very uh, very practical it's also it seems like something you could wear on the job um, and I was like Fuck, that's hot. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 we talked about Pride and Prejudice earlier. It is one of those moments. This is probably probably an awakening moment for a lot of people. Um, I, I, I was just like, well, that that is a very attractive thing that James Cromwell does. What what the heck? He is like 60 in this movie. 
He's you... so good in this film. He's I was reading so a bit about good. it. Because he got he got nominated right for this, and I think he, he should have won, won for this. He won at some awards, but he didn't win at the Oscars. But I was, I was reading about it because I was so fascinated. Um, do, 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 and... Did you know who won though? No, who did win? Probably someone from Shakespeare. Gonna... Oh my no. god, that was that's nineteen ninety eight, wasn't it? It's, um, it's even worse. It's Kevin Spacey and Usual Suspects. Oh god, of course it is. Yeah, I forgot that. I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Anyway, moving on from that. Um, <laughs> the less said, the better. Um, yeah, like James Cromwell, like he was. I was reading about like why he took the role, and he had been in a lot of things at that point, which he had found very intensive, and that he did not have very much faith in his performance. And he read for the script, and so he did not have many lines, so presumed he would not be in it very much, <laughs> um, and thought that would be easy. Little did he know that his defining character trait is that he doesn't speak much but is a very physical presence his presence overshadows the movie he is he is in a lot of it and he has a load of presence and it's a beautiful performance um because of how much isn't said more than what is said um, and, and how he yeah. doesn't say things there's a great moment where um i forget what exactly is happening but babe like starts hurting the sheep and he just mm. stands there dumbfounded and it's such a good like reaction shot to him just being like holy hell that worked yeah, he's he's so good. It's so yeah, yeah, yeah. He did say like that this was a performance that he actually did have faith in, and it really kind of like revitalized him. Um, he's really proud of it, and he talks about like the famous line, the that'll do pig, of like how he was channeling like his father at that point of telling him like oh. boy, that, that he had that emotion in his voice, and you can see it in the movie, and it's it's just cute and it's wonderful. That, Again, I'm glad I didn't know that, that watching hard. the movie because I'd have cried. They but, didn't uh... need to. No one needed to commit as hard as they did to this film, and they really did, and it's a testament to it. That's my favorite thing in any movie is like if if people committed and they brought their all like that's all I ask for. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So talking about James Cromwell. Um. So at this point, uh, he sees Babe sort of interested in sheep herding, and he sort of gives Babe a chance, and Babe succeeds. Yes. Um. And then there's this point where, uh, Babe gets into the house because it's raining. Um, and he meets the cat. <laughs> In a, a very Babe 2-esque moment. The cat is the worst. Uh, and the cat's like, yo, we're gonna eat you. Oh, but the way the cat does it, though, the way the cat, like, builds I can't, up I can't do it, but it's... It's so funny. It's such, again, it is very Babe 2 in this way of being, like, this really weird, is. strange, twisted scene. And I'm like, what is going on here? Of the cat decides to Machiavell its way into, like, Socratic questioning to make the pig realise the pig is going to be eaten. It's just, yeah. I love it. Um, creepy, though. And mm. at this point, Babe, like, gives up all hope on life. Mm. Um, and Esme, the uh, wife, goes away for a trip at this point also. She rules. She does. We'll get to that. <laughs> she gets hers in a second, though. She gets hers. She does. Oh. Um, but I-, I wanted to get to this point as-, as we were talking about James Cromwell, which is James Cromwell, as we all know, is confused why this pig won't eat or drink or anything. And I've had to deal with this sometimes with my dog when she's just like, I... Mm feel down and don't want to eat and i'm just like but but why nothing happened (laughs) like he wants to herd sheep and can't if you consider that well she is a sheep dog so Ah. that literally could be belly she's asleep on my bed right here oh hello Uh, she's a collie she's really cute 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 cute. and uh, i'm assuming you have a cat given your profile picture 
I do have a cat. My cat looks like the cat from Alien and is named after the cat from Alien. What is the name of the cat in Alien? Jonesy slash Jones. Ah, that's right. I should have known that, but at the same time, I don't think that's something I really needed to keep in my memory. Yeah, but... unless you have a cat called that, then you need to remember that. Well, sure, but uh, <laughs> when, when you when you said the name, I was like, oh, that's right. Um, but yeah, isn't there times where just like your cat is like, and and nothing really happened, but your cat is just like acting different, and you're like, why? I mean, yeah, the cats—they're always being like uh, that's always true. an enigma. <laughs> it's e- like, what, e- what, even what, more what than you? dogs, cats will just be like, "I want to get pet," and then I want to kill you. Yeah, I love cats. <laughs> cats are great. Um, yeah, and so I think this is another good like animal interaction where like just something happened with Babe. Babe's not mm-hmm. feeling it, and Farmer Hoggett has to kind of figure out how to get Babe to cheer up, which we have to do with our pets. Um. I guess you don't really have to do with the cat. Just leave the cat alone. <laughs> that, that's yeah, what will yeah, work yeah. most. Um, but yeah, and Jane's Cromwell in this sort of uh, montage sequence, I would say. Um, <laughs> th- this is why he should have won Best Actor, honestly, is uh, trying to get the dog to uh, get some milk. And then he starts singing, If I Had Words. Oh, this and- is a lovely scene. It's too much. This is where I was getting a little choked up in the movie. Um, and he does this great, like, as he's, like, getting to the chorus, he, like, jumps in the air, like, hands raised. It's it's a great shot. And then mm. Babe's, like, faith is restored in humanity and in life for him, and he starts eating again. This is a great scene. I love James Cromwell. Um, and Farmer Hoggett also does a jig. Mm. Which, which you want from a farmer. So, yeah. you know, it takes that box. D- did your father do a jig at any point in his life? Um, I'm, he's, he's not much of a, not much of a jigger, so... Neither, neither is mine. Yeah. We'll see. Um, one day, one day, one day. So, basically, at this point, Farmer Hoggett uh, submits Babe to a sheep herding contest. Uh, he goes there and is laughed at. Oh, there's a great moment though when he's looking down the. It's like it speaks so much of his character of being like his integrity, and he's looking at the list and he's like, and the narrator's like, he knew that he might have to come up with the thing that said name of sheepdog, and he could not continue because it is not a sheepdog, and it just says name, and he's like, phew, <laughs> it's this that that would be the thing that set him off. It's just so wonderful. What what a great man. What a kind great man. He's the best. Um, yeah. Babe and him are kind of made for each other. Yeah. Did we skip over the bit where he, where the babe gets accused of murdering a sheep? <laughs> we did. I mentioned yeah, the sheep herding uh, stealer people, but that I forgot to mention that. Uh... There's a bit where he holds a gun to Babe, and Babe says the most traumatic thing maybe in any film ever, <laughs> which is the I remember this from my childhood. I think it produces food or something. Like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what guns do. Well, yeah, actually, it does for I the humans, but not for that. you. I can see why you would think that. Oh, God. But he doesn't shoot the pig. Thank the pig. Um, yeah, and so um, there's an interesting... And this is where I think Rex gets like his golden moment where Rex and Fly, who are at the competition with Babe, I think he mainly takes them just to not look like a complete fool. <laughs> to be like, oh, here are sheepdogs. I'm not here just with a pig. Yeah. Uh, but basically they realize that these sheep do not give two cents about Babe. 
Oh. And Rex runs back to the uh, farm. I can't like this is I cannot believe I'm going to be describing this, but he asks the sheep what to do to get sheep yep. to listen, and the sheep give Rex the sheep password, which is Baram you, Baram you, your wool, your herd, <laughs> sheep be true, sheep be true. That's all sheep be true, sheep be true. What? <laughs> People say that Babe 2 is a strange movie. Come on, like, what is this? <laughs> you need a sheep password. And Rex runs back and is like, you go get him, Babe. And there's also this is the adventure game where... logic. This is Monkey Island stuff. I'm against it. Yeah, and, and there's this backstory of Rex was supposed to be sort of the prize sheep herding dog, but then lost his hearing and in a, a flooding accident. Yeah, uh, there's a bit too much in the back third of this film. <laughs> But basically, we sort of get that Rex holds a bit of a grudge against uh, seeing Babe be mm. the uh, sheep herding champion. He's not, like, mean about it. It's not, like, as yeah. contrived or melodramatic as other movies would have gone. But he's just sort of, like, he's more or less, like, disappointed seeing someone else succeed at what he wanted to succeed in. I like the lack of force conflict in this movie. I really like it. I like yes. that there is not, there isn't, there could have been so easily a storyline about, like, Babe like ruining a family and like that kind of thing of being like being rejected by others they just roll they roll with so many things that mm-hmm. they other lesser films would just not and there are so many opportunities to add drama it would be manipulative and they just don't and i like that yeah um but rex already knew back in tell he'd bade the password i think is just like a, a crowding moment of like rex you king <laughs> <laughs> this movie needs a third act let's go <laughs> uh Farmer Hoggett uh, somehow convinces people that he should, uh, whatever the board of this competition is, that he can have the pig in. In an airbud moment, it's very much like there is no rule that says a pig can't be a sheepdog. And like, well, yeah, I guess there isn't a specific rule that says that. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Cromwell goes out into the field. Babe. Babe says the Beautiful password. Shot. There, there are so many great shots in this, especially of just Cromwell just sort of standing there stoically, mm. just being like, hmm. And he like looks at his stopwatch and he's like, all right, we're making it's time. a really great wide shot where he's like almost silhouetted and he's just standing there and it's just him, the horizon, and it's just this moment of like, the music stops, the sound stops, just like calm, like serenity of him trusting. And the reason the scene works is because no one else trusts this is going to work. And he just stands there and is calm and knows it's going to work. And it just holds it for a little bit. And then it shows the success. And it's just it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And is that the shot where um, there's this great shot from behind Farmer yes. Hoggett? Like, oh, like yes. from his shoulder? But he it's not like a shoulder shot. It's positioned directly behind him. And he's mm-hmm. out of focus. And we just see the entire crowd like booing and laughing him. And he so doesn't good. move. And then it just refocuses the shot to him and they all go out of focus as they all yeah. start being like, oh, wait, the pig's hurting the sheep. Yes. That is cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, as uh, Babe completes it, everyone, you know, claps. Woo! Um, yeah. And he wins the trophy and uh, Cromwell says the line... Babe, Babe just sort of looks at to him. Literally, the skies part, and there's like a spotlight from God on them. And, Which again, uh, Babe two really ramps up the Babe is Jesus metaphor. But yes. oh yes, 
oh yes um and he says that'll do pig that'll do oh. and which is how the second film ends as well so there's a beautiful like synchronicity there yeah um and it ends with uh the mice scene over the credits mm. do you know mm. what they sing i can't remember i've watched babe two since my head is full of babe two if i had words oh of course of course all right nice movie i like it we're on to babe two Oh, Babe Which, 2 is incredible. We're picking up the Babe 2, literally, right where Babe 1 leaves off. Yeah, I know. It's wild. So this film has so much sass, which is why I love it. This is such a strange thing. Like, it obviously comes out a bit later. Um, we need to talk about, like, the production behind these, um, because obviously, like, George Miller, very involved, involved with the first one, and clearly wanted the first one to be certain things, and he claimed that, like... He had got Babe One prepped that he handed it to Noonan on a plate and therefore Noonan had no real impact on it, um, yeah. which is a really sad thing to read. And Noonan's really upset about that because he feels like George Miller robbed his film. Especially because um, like, think... it, it wasn't just like Miller called in like a director to come in and direct sort of mm. his idea. Chris Noonan was his like protege, his apprentice. And they and co-wrote they it, didn't they? What? Aren't they co-writers? On Babe? On Babe One, yeah. Yeah, they are. But Yeah, so like there's involvement, like there's serious involvement from both parties there. <laughs> yeah, but 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 the thing was is like I think Chris Noonan had sort of been working as an assistant director under George Miller for a while. Mm. Like George Miller was sort of his person that like was teaching him how to make movies. And he, like it wasn't just like George Miller went out and got a director and was like, Hey, can you direct a movie? He yeah. was like, You are my protege. I don't really have the time nor the necessity to direct Babe 1. I want to be involved. I'm making exploitation films. Yes. And um, basically, Chris Noonan was like betrayed by his master at some level. But I think like Babe 2, I think very much proves they do have different directorial sensibilities because they are very different films. And there is that edge to Babe 1, which on retrospect is very much clearly like the Miller inflection of the, this is a bit weird, this is a bit surreal, this is a bit heightened, the film steers away from, and that seems to be kind of like dueling sensibilities, whereas yeah. this film is so, like, I have, I, and I do not mean this as a joke, this is George Miller's best film, um, and I, I really love George Miller as a filmmaker mm. I know, I mean, Fury Road is, a, is an absolute masterpiece and Fury Road's probably his... my one, but that is this is probably my two what Fury say. Road, I think. I mean, it's very hard for me to argue. Like Fury Road is is an almost perfect movie. It's 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 phenomenal. Um, but if I'm gonna say like this holds a candle to Fury Road, I can see it being second for most. But for me, I like I, I do slightly prefer it. So just just like Babe. That's um, fair. That's fair. It's I, to me, I'm really surprised. People were like, "Wait, George Miller made Babe, the Mad Max person." I'm like, "Have you seen Babe too? Because <laughs> Yeah, obviously he did. You watch this film and it has so much, like, surrealism. It's so avant-garde. It just goes for every fence. Like, the, the camera is so kinetic. The set pieces are just so large. It does that thing that um, happens at the beginning of Free Road. There's a bit where Babe is running and it does that kind of, like, almost um, subliminal kind of, like, flashes which it yeah. does at the beginning of Fury Road to link it to the previous films. So you, you can you can see him work out there's a chase scene in this movie where you can see him trying some of the things or in Fury Road later. It, it is not a surprise to me these are the same filmmakers. It's just no. that he applies a sensibility. He makes... I mean, yeah, you're like, he makes Mad Max and it's a very violent kind of like... I mean, the first one more than the rest, but like yeah. very violent, very extreme, very in-your-face films. But this is that kind of attitude just applied to children's cinema. Um, mm-hmm. But it is still... And, and goes it's the same it. thing with Happy Feet. Which 
is not as good, but it's it's no. like it's sort of that like surrealist, uh, weird, intense, strange character sort of storyline. Um, like you've seen Happy Feet, right? Uh, yeah, I have seen Happy Feet. I, I have not seen it since it came out, and did not really like it Do you remember really the like psychotic penguin leader that wears coke rings around its yeah, neck? Yeah. Like that film is insane, and like oh, just everything about the creation of the world of Babe Two. And I like it's so hard to talk about Babe Two in a linear way because it is such a madcap tale. It is so all over the place, but in a fabulous way. Like I hate to sound like film nerd one one, but like. Words like Fellini-esque are thrown around a lot and um, carelessly, but there is this maximalist, like, Fellini-like, circus-like sensibility that goes all the way through Babe 2. It's not it's like, far off of Eight and a Half. It's not. It really isn't. Like, it, it is It is going for the Fellini-esque circus, and it, it, it employs it well where other films do not employ it well. It is maximalist nonsense, but in the mm-hmm. most wonderful way. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it uh, starts with sass. It starts with the word so, and you're like, a film has attitude when its first word is so. It's just the title card, so. The best sheepdog in the world is a pig. And you're like, I'm in. I'm in, movie. I'm in. Uh, yeah, and it, it picks up on this sort of, like, uh, celebration, sort of walk back to farmer Hoggett's farm. There's a bunch of quote-unquote fans there. Uh, That's, again, already a great scene. You're like, what is this? This is already such a different aesthetic. There's just these, like, rapid fans of sheep herding that just have so many placards. And, and it uh, seems like uh, this ha- this is, like, the next day, if not the day yep. of. And they're, they're just there. They just love it. Um, um, I wrote down some of the, the plaque cards that the fans uh, are holding up. Viva la pig. Yes. Ole, ole pig. And my favorite, pigs are best. With the <laughs> R spelled with... Letter R, not A R E R. Pigs are best. Like toys I, are us. Pigs are best. I don't know who does like the the set design, production design for George Miller movies, but I know a lot of the people that worked on Fury Road worked on this film. Because um, I've looked into it a lot because I'm very interested by this. But <laughs> whoever is doing this stuff, it's brilliant, and there is unified language. I'd, it would be remiss of me if I was not meant. So my partner is doing a PhD at the moment, and her PhD is in archaeology. In, um, in what? In archaeology. Um, specifically okay. looking at um, graffiti, um, graffiti on heritage sites and heritage graffiti oh. and the mix of the contemporary and the, the old and the old of the contemporary, what that means. So new graffiti on old buildings or old graffiti on old buildings and just graffiti as a thing. Um, and she's also done seminars and she has spoken and given like a, a Twitter conference on use of graffiti in film. Um, mm. And she used a Mad Max Fury Road as an example. There's a really iconic bit in Fury Road, the piece of visual storytelling through graffiti of the we are not things, when there's that lady with the shotgun just standing there with those words emblazoned behind her, and it's so cool. It However, Mad Max 1 has my partner's favourite moment of graffiti in any film ever because it's so ridiculous, so I have to mention it. Um, because, like, she did a thing, um, the beginning of the pandemic, you probably find it somewhere, it's a video that she made um, about how films convey pandemics and how they use graffiti to talk about pandemics because we noticed that in our current pandemic that i don't know about in your country but people writing out in the streets and people using street art on a very casual way was a way that communities communicated a lot and 
films like Children of Men, I mean, they hired oh, Banksy yeah. to work with Children of Men, like, use graffiti in a very different way, and Legete and Twelve Monkeys use it in a very different way of, like, to signal collapse of society. So there's a great, like, narrative there, and a film like Contagion ignores it completely. But yeah. in Mad Max, there's one piece of graffiti where there's one of those signs being, like, no accidents in, like, 20 days or something, and it's signed by the police force, and someone has crossed out the O and put an A there so it says police farce. As if it's the most, like, badass, like, this is how society goes down. And it's just <laughs> such, like, the stupidest, like, weirdly wholesome <laughs> moment of, like, protest graffiti in a film. And, like, I think that does speak to this, like, babe stuff being like, someone has a sense of humour here, and they know it's ridiculous, yeah. and it's wonderful. What's arguably the most ridiculous thing here is um, there's a skyplane mm-hmm. that writes out the yep. words ham, <laughs> and then adds a C to the beginning and a P to the end of the <laughs> champ. <laughs> this film is so good. <laughs> you know, I feel like I could say this exact thing to someone else and they'd be like, this film is the stupidest fucking thing and it's so horrible. Oh, it's so good. But like, uh, the opening of Babe 2 is exceptional. There is this very dumb screenwriting idea that I think, you've seen The Long Goodbye, right? Mm, no. Oh, it's so good. Oh, the Long Goodbye is phenomenal. I need movie. to watch it. Um, so the long goodbye kind of like subverts this very nicely, but there is like that book written about saving the cat, the idea that what you should make your main character save a cat or a symbolically linked action at the beginning of a film to align your audience to them. So they should do a, a minor heroic action so you know they're on the level. Um, and the long goodbye starts by him like losing his cat, which seems like very aware of that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Babe, goddamn too, starts with a heroic pig almost murdering a beloved old man. I thought he was dead. It's so cool. Like, that's such the... No, we're not going to, like, do this moment of being, like, do a nice thing. We're going to make him do something horrendous. He doesn't do and it on purpose, though. I know. And it's it's not on purpose. But it's such a bold way to open this movie. Like, this is going to start with, like, almost manslaughter. <laughs> Poor... Uh, Incredible. Yeah. Um, basically, for the people that haven't seen it, to describe it as uh, James Cromwell is in a well. Which... <laughs> That was hard to say. Uh, James Cromwell is in a well. Um, he does it. He does it well. God damn it! <laughs> uh, and basically, Babe accidentally falls down, and he's on like a pulley system. And yeah, there, there's a whole like they go up and down and up and down, and every time like something hits James Cromwell in the head, or and basically. You've... The final thing is James Cromwell is like almost submerged in water and has just his head above water. And then this massive crate of like supplies falls on his head and he goes down into the water and he doesn't come up. And I'm like, he's dead. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, this movie has a kill count. Babe kills a man later in the movie. Um, we'll talk about that. He murders yes. someone. <laughs> which is not murder. So I mean, it. That is not even... You can't even consider what he did manslaughter. No, but I, at the I same know. time, I like to speak hyperbolically. Babe straight up ices the dude. Later in the <laughs> in so cold cool. blood. In just, cold blood, he gets just him. Just kills him. Just kills him. Um, but, like, again, this movie is so in conversation with other movies for me and movies that weren't even out yet. Um, you've seen Magnolia, yes? Oh, hell yeah. Like, you know the opening of Magnolia, the brilliant, brilliant opening of the, like... That tentative voice, the way that it's phrased and written of like, if only this hadn't happened, if only this hadn't happened. Yep. And it's going for that really wonderful thing of like, she fell out the window and like, please let me like, 
it's so similar to the opening of Babe 2. It really is. I mean, the they have the same sort of sensibility of like, I, I mean, both of them, I mean, Babe, more in this moment, but Magnolia as a whole is like these small moments that lead up to sort of like mm. an interrible sort of conclusion. Like, and like what happens of... if one of these things didn't happen and we weren't in this scenario? There is a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson in this film. I'm convinced that Paul Thomas Anderson has seen this film because even like the penultimate scene, the way that these balloons fall down in the in the dance oh, it, it's hall is so Thread. similar to the ending of Phantom Thread. Um, it's it's so Thread. so similar, and and again, this opening is it's it's the voice of the writing. It's the the way it's written in the it's voice Magnolia. written. I, it's it's so similar to that opening of Magnolia, and the ending you know is so let, similar to Phantom Thread. Let me call up Paul and ask him real quick. <laughs> I I can't. I wish. <sighs> Paul Thomas Anderson, if you are are hearing this, or N'Golo Conte, y- you're rich and famous. If you uh, if you if you can get in touch with Paul, uh, we'll have you both on the podcast with Stephen and I. We'll talk. Oh, yeah, uh, talk movies. Yes. Um. Yeah, and so basically, at this point, with Farmer Hoggett, okay, out of curiosity, so Farmer Hoggett is in like a full body cast. And he's just sitting yes. on this chair. He could barely move. And Babe knows exactly what, like, he he did something bad. And this is the one part in the movie where, like, the animal acts like I expect the animal would act. Which is, like, Babe is just kind of, like, he's not, like, crying or anything, like, in, in sort of a human sort of way. But he's just sort of, like, looking sad at poor old James Cromwell. And James Cromwell, who just almost got murdered by this pig, just, like, pets him because he's like, yeah, I know you didn't mean it. That's such a human to pet interaction of like, you just pooped everywhere and then broke your crate and then like ripped up the furniture and it's like, ah, I love you. Which but then there's that's the all right that's the inciting into this film that that leads to you know we've where do we go from Babe One Babe One is very much a film about you know this becomes sheep pig cool yeah. there you go where do you go from there there's not really many places so this decides to set the most bizarre thing about like how does the farmer survive <laughs> so this idea like I, this is going to sound ridiculous and i apologize already um but i i'm a person that gets asked a lot because I, you know, i'm very interested in politics and film as political medium and i get asked a lot by friends and acquaintances to give them like lists of good leftist cinema and there are obvious ones but occasionally i do drop in babe too of i think it is a really interesting left-wing film um, with some of its idea. It is so anti-establishment. It has very overt communist leanings at the end, which are really, really interesting. And the way it, it frames, like, the people and the land and landowners and, like, how capital is accrued. And then you've got the bank arrives and the bank are framed as this, like, sinister force. And then yep. later, every time you see a policeman, sorry, a police officer in this film, they are framed really negatively. It is so against, like, the state, the capitalist state and the apparatus of the capitalist state as opposed to this, like, We're going to get to one of the... Uh, yeah, and we're gonna get. I, I should, I'll just talk about it now, because so basically the bank comes, the farm is in trouble. So Esme and Babe go to a competition. Mm. Now in their connecting flight, which this makes no sense to me because you don't go and pick up your bags at a connecting flight. <laughs> so whatever. But Babe is unfloated and he interacts with a police beagle. That <gasps> who is a babe, cog in the system? He's a damn cog he's in the, the system. Cog in the system, and the Babe is just like yo what do you do and he's like oh i bark and i get rewards for it <laughs> it's so good like, and he's like and the babe's like A-cab oh satire. show me and then the babe and then the dog just barks and then he gets rewarded for barking but the consequences of him barking is they get stranded 
Uh, Esme gets strip searched. Yeah, there's some really good anti-police like they, ideas there, but done very, very casually. This idea of being like, I don't care what your intentions are. You're part of the system, and your role in this system is a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, Love you're it. getting rewarded for like a babe gets like X-rayed, and I'm like, Good lord, what are we doing mm. here? Um, yeah. So, uh, they're basic because they couldn't make their connecting flight because of the whole strip search thing. Just, which is the quite amount of scary. Narrative steps, it is the amount of narrative steps this film puts in just to put and a it's pig in like in a the single city. minute. It's just wonderful, and it's a genuinely intense scene where like they sort of she sort of comes into this room and there's like these really scary looking people there that are like mm. take your clothes off. The state you can't trust the state. No. Um, then there's a great I love the scene. I wrote down everything from this part, but she basically walks up into this sort of Terry Gilliam esque wall mm. of pamphlets. <laughs> Which it look looks like something out of Brazil for me. Um, yeah, and she has to start calling hotel by hotel and be like, "Can you take a pig?" And she sort of is like at first like all uh, she has sort of like the sensibilities of like the farm where it's like, "Oh, the pig will be fine." She's like, "Oh no, pets! You don't have pets? Oh no!" And then she calls another one, and I'm assuming it's like, "Oh, we'll take some pets." And she's like, "It's a small pet, don't you?" And then, like, there's another one where it's like, it's more of a dog. And then <laughs> another one, it's like, it's practically a human. <laughs> Which I apologize so to good. all English people for those that accent. But um, I, I accept it. Thank you, Stephen. You, you didn't have to because that was bad. But basically, she like gets more and more exasperated of people like trying to be like, oh no, thank you. And she's like, it's it's not it, it's fine. It's it, <laughs> why can't you just like. Duh. Whatever. It's yeah. I get this. This film is glorious. It's it's just so glorious. So then, so she is stuck in the airport with Pig, waiting for the connecting flight, and is then told that they can't be there, um, and they must be kicked out. Which again, like these these again, like some faceless figure just like kicking them out. Authority figures. This film is so anti-authority, which is wonderful. Yep. <laughs> and uh, then it introduced one of the strangest recurring jokes in the film. I are these the same people? They're not I the same people, know. right? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's the same person, which makes it even fucking weirder. <laughs> Again, this is the third time I've watched this film this year, and I still <laughs> do not know. Please explain who this person is, Stephen. So, this some person, like, in this kind of, like... It, it, it has, like, the underground logic to it here. This is that <laughs> sense of, like, there is this weird kind of, like... World War Two uh, allegory. You're, you're talking about the 1995 movie, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I mean, very similar. Um, <laughs> but there is this sense of being like, hey, we know a place where you can go, like, you know, we've got, like, this underground railroad, for want of a better word, but, like, we know where you can get looked after. And he's like, I know a place, call this number, they'll take in a pig. And then the narrator is like, she'll never know why this man was, like, so kind to her. And it pans up and he's just got a pig nose. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what is going on? I don't know. Did you see the mermaid's tail at one point in this film? What? No. Okay, this film is wild. Um, during the court case, which also has a judge that's a pig, um, so that joke reoccurs, you can see the front row of the of the court. Um, my friend Zoe like pointed this out because she was like, oh, Stephen, I watched this film. Do you think I didn't notice the mermaid tail? I did. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I watched for it this time. Um, 
And in the front row, where everyone is just sat, some of them seemingly in bondage gear or whatever, the, the things that people wear in this film is brilliant and is so Mad Max. Like, they're all, like, hanging it out really in, like, is. bikinis or whatever. And there's just, like, the tip of a mermaid's tail just in the corner of the screen. <laughs> just there. Okay. Sure. I, I don't know. Why I assumed you were going to say it's, like, in, like, the Venetian sort of, like, water set that, like, maybe just a mermaid's tail popped out. But that'd be too logical. Just in the front row of this court case, which has a like a front row like an audience. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Good movie. Good movie. Uh, anyway, so they go to this hotel that the the pigman the pigman looks like something out of. Okay, there's this. You watch the Twilight Zone, right? Uh, no. Whatever. Okay, never mind. But it's looks like something out of the Twilight Zone. Um, I they get into this hotel street. This set, Stephen. It's beautiful. Oh my god. Like, I I have a theory. Have you seen the film The Devils? <laughs> no. But oh. Janna watched it a couple weeks ago. And it's one of Nick's favorite movies. And it's so one I, of my I, favorite movies of all time. It is it is as good as films get. It is so incredible. And do you know who this, doesn't like, like The Devils, though? Most people, the the church, Roger Ebert. <laughs> Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert yeah. has it on his most hated movies of all time. Yeah, alongside Blue Velvet. So you know what does that man know? Um, so <laughs> he like, likes Babe too. He, he does. Okay, so he knows that. Um, the Devils has um, sets by Derek Jarman, um, a phenomenal uh, filmmaker, Derek Jarman, um, and they are the most beautiful sets you'll ever see. Um, and why The Devils is so cool is it's a period movie, but the sets are so pristine and modern looking to remind you that this wasn't period at the time. Like so many period films look like grimy and dirty. And it's like, why do things look old when they're new? Um, so it yeah. has this very clean aesthetic, but it also uses kind of like fascistic architecture that, um, that kind of like art deco style that is very synonymous with like um, objectivism and with Nazism. Um, and it uses it very purposefully. Uh, but for me, there is a lineage because that's based off German expressionism as well of of, of, the, of the film of like the sets were inspired by Metropolis and why I love The Devil so much is it feels like a film from a parallel world where alright I, I, to simplify it because of the way the world war went which it went well thankfully in the end um, yes Hollywood took over as the filmic power because they had the money and the resources and the time and they set the language for cinema before that point that wasn't necessarily the case um, but The Devils feels like a parallel world where the mainstream did not become Hollywood. The mainstream became German Expressionism. And the, a film with that kind of budget and that kind of resources made in the 70s, it's like, man, I want to live in the world, not with the Nazis one, obviously, but when like a different aesthetic sensibility took over and had that thing. And to me, like this lineage from German Expressionism, from Metropolis to The Devils to goddamn Babe 2 of the, is also doing this. Babe like, 2 is mm- pure German Expressionism. It, it, I know that sounds like a joke, it's not a joke. But it's not a joke. This film is beautiful and it's so expressionist and it's so surrealist and it's so evocative with the set design of different places. Uh, it's just a wonderful looking movie. We're going to... Okay, so we'll get to that in just a second. I think the the peak of it, at least. Mm. Um, the city? Yes. But first we got to mm. be like, okay, so basically uh, Esme knocks on the door three times every time the person answers like go away we don't take pigs and she's like so confused and so she starts walking back down this alleyway but then when she crosses by the hotel's back alley the hotel owner's like come on inside like <laughs> Again, she's so weird 
allegory that we are in the Cold War or the Stalinist purges or we're in like Nazi occupation and there is like a at no point in this movie does it explain why animals are so banned we just have to accept that animals are banned in this society and we do not know why it is so great yes um oh it's weird but anyway uh they get into the hotel they get a room a uh, segregated babe, hotel it's a yeah but babe gets into his room and he looks out the window now steven what does babe see babe sees the titular big city um which ah, oh, it, it is beautiful it's called metropolis very knowingly um and the city is this composite it's it's like the platonic ideal of a city of a mega city it has the golden gate bridge it's got the sydney opera house it's got christ the redeemer it's got seemingly like moscow cathedral it's got every major landmark and if i wrote down as my... many as i could see which so was the many. hollywood it's sign ridiculous. rio de janeiro uh the world trade centers the cn tower the eiffel tower the statue of liberty the golden gate bridge red square sydney opera house chrysler building and big ben yeah it's Wow, it looks so cool. And again, to get to the weird like politics of this movie, which I mean weird, not in a pejorative sense, but in just like a utterly bizarre, there is this strange idea in this film about like modern capitalism and how it looks as opposed to kind of like different kinds of way of like being. And like it has this monolith of like the city and the modern world and modern capitalist society that it frames in this way. And like that this city is the every city and that it's also... A place of oppression is really fascinating yep. to me. I don't know. It's it's really cool. Well, I I think one of the best ways to sort of describe this the city and sort of the story is to go back to a film that it very clearly references on its poster, which is one uh, of yes. if not my all time favorite movie of all time, and that is The Wizard of Oz. Because hmm. on the poster we see Metropolis in the background, a yellow brick road leading up to Babe. <laughs> And some of the weird characters he meets along the way. Which is a great there you analog. Go. Because, I mean, this film doesn't have any like overt allusions to Wizard of Oz that I saw. It's not like a, um, oh God, what's that fantastic David Lynch movie? Uh, Wild at Heart. It's not Wild at Heart. Um, but to the post is very useful as a way of like realising what this film is about. It is about this like transportative, taken to another world, another dimension. Which, I'm going to spoil this now because it's so great. In the last, like... 30 seconds of this film the narrator just casually drops that Babe takes place in an alternate reality did he? yes it's beautiful did it's I miss just, that? what happened? it's like my favourite line in the movie because of its political implications because like he describes it as a place just left of the 20th century I'm like what oh, I does did, that I did, I re- mean? I did write that down I mean it sounds like Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone <laughs> It's just very much like, oh, by the way, this is a parallel dimension, um, but it yeah. also links to like these strange, like overtly leftist themes of the film as well, which are just wonderful. Oh god, mm-hmm. what a hell of a movie! Yeah, um, and I mean, the, while it doesn't like actually uh, homage to Wizard of Oz as like no. a story, it, it still has this sort of like everyone believes in the greatness of this city, this massive metropolis, yes. and it's just fake. And it's yes. stupid. 
Mm. Um, and I love that politically I love that about this movie it's like there's this idea of this like very bourgeois and when we see it in its full flow later it's this mix of time periods they're all very decadent time periods they're all very maximalist time periods this idea of like human excess that's gone too far and that is crushing this like proletariat and like genuinely when we get to the end like the end moment is genuinely our farmer in this agricultural society that's welcomed all taking the means of production into his hands and like producing them symbolically through I have set up the tap and it's like what is this? This is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, anyway, we're g- getting back into the middle of the movie where we are. Um, I my Okay, you're going to have to help me out because I completely don't remember why I wrote this down. I wrote down Baba Boo the Big Banana Loo. What? Do you know what that is? No. I'm off my rocker. Um, I'm sure in the moment it would have made sense. Um, yeah, like maybe it's a line or something, but... Whatever it is. Um, if anyone uh, knows what Baba Boo the Big Banana Loo is from Bay Pig in the City, that somehow Bay Pig in the City expert Steven doesn't know. Mm, no. Help me out. Uh, Sorry. Message us on Twitter something. I don't care. Yeah. Um, so while, while Esme is out, what does she have to go out for? Oh, it's so great because like... Um... So I mentioned casually this is a segregated hotel, which it's not quite as it sounds. It's segregated by different like animals and different floors. So it, it does the Bay One thing of being like animals are different and must be kept differently. Um, and yeah. then it it devolves that later, but for a different aim here. This is not about like being individuals. This is about like let's restructure society as communists. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Babe rules. Um, so like Babe doesn't know where to fit because there's no pigs here, and he can't go to the cat floor. He can't go to the dog floor, and he ends up on the the ape monkey floor. Um, well. And Okay, quickly, the quickly, great, quickly. The greatest characters. The greatest characters. Describe the cat floor. Where they just do choir? Yes. Yeah, oh What my God. the hell is going on, Steven? I don't know. The, the greatest moment of the film, in a film of many greatest moments, of we're just following the mice walking around, um, quite low down, and they hear a beautiful tune. Um, we, the listeners, know that tune is Three Blind Mice, but they don't know it because they're not singing yet. And then the camera, just because the camera is so dynamic in this movie, like just like zooms in, goes places, just like goes straight through into this room where all these cats are just set up like a goddamn choir, like a massive orchestral choir. I know that doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean? Where the front cat is using his tail to conduct them. To conduct it. Oh, it's beautiful and it's so well lit and it's so bizarre. And they are just singing Three Blind Mice. And then, best moment of the movie, it just zooms to a title card, and the mice just go, Chaos Theory! And it's just like, <laughs> this movie is incredible. Yeah. Uh, ha- have you seen yeah. Antichrist? I do not like Antichrist. No, I hate it. But Last one for I did read your review on Babe 2, The Pig <laughs> of the City, where you bring up Antichrist. So I know yes. where you're going with this. Yeah, Lars von Trier. The one know, good moment no in Nazi. Antichrist. Yeah, the one good moment in no Nazi Lars von Trier's movie um, is a fox just appears and just says, Chaos reigns, and it's hilarious. But No, you have to you have to say it like the fox says it. Chaos reigns. It's just... <laughs> Chaos reigns. Uh, what a great moment in a bad movie. Um, again, Lars von Trier, I hate him. Um, but yeah, this is so much better than that. And in a better movie. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. <laughs> Well, okay, we're going to get to Bizarre. We're going to get to what I would consider the weirdest subsection of this movie. Well, the reason that she has to go outside, sorry, is because um, 
the pig oh. finds its way to the um, ape society, who's this like functioning like proto family. And again, to go into the, the weird anti capitalist logic of this film, where they are trying to like be as humans and play as humans and to fit into ordained human roles. One of them gets like addicted to wearing clothes, basically. There is this need to perform in a societal way as opposed to break out the constraints of society, and that like crushes them and imprisons them. And they see they're very nihilist and very cynical. And, like, Babe treats them that there is a... Again, well, this movie is I'm a person who annoys people by, like... I have very idealistic politics of the idea that we can break the system and there is a better way out there and that capitalism is not the only way. And these apes are of the opinion of being like, you know, life sucks and it's bad and it's stacked against you. And Babe's like, no, we can change this. We can go for a better world. So that's what they function for. Um, mm-hmm. But they... They are doing their thing, and then Uncle Fugly appears, who is this, like, strange, doddering old man who is related to the owner of the hotel. This film is so hard to explain. It makes no sense. Um, and he sees what, the pig. What is energy like, is Mickey Rooney giving in this movie? Better than in other movies. <laughs> well, mm. I, I'm going to edit in a Breakfast of Tiffany's. Oh, 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 no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> yeah, please do not. Um but that's what we're alluding to, yes. Um, so yeah, he uh, he has a weird stage act with these monkeys and realizes the pig can get involved. So the monkeys hide the pig. They're probably apes. I'm sorry. Um, hide the pig in a wicker basket, and then Uncle Fugly steps out, pretending he doesn't know what's going on. And Esme is like, "Have you seen my pig?" And Uncle Fugly makes weird gestures because apparently he is non-verbal. Um, and then the hotel manager goes, oh, "Did you nothing?" He Which... just, like, makes gestures, and he's like, <laughs> and it's, what? And then he's translated, and he said, oh, what he said is, we saw a pig-like thing that just ran outside and went left down Canal Street. So she follows. Okay. The <laughs> scene where she is outside. Oh, Stephen, how scene. would you describe this? I want to keep on giving these scenes to you, because I'm curious on how you approach this. Oh, God, is, 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 is this the beginning of the riot? Hmm. Yeah. By skipping ahead, um, I can't. I, the main thing I think of the scene is where she's just going, "Hey, pig, 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 pig," and the <laughs> cops are like, "The yes. fuck?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so she she goes. This is the first time in the city. She walks in. Everyone is everyone is just like weirdly gorgeous, and like is everyone is like hardly wearing any clothes. Is walking around. There's people like boom boxes. It's so. It strange. looks like Mad Max. It does again, George Miller, um, and there's like this biker cops hanging around, and like, there's this like punk faction, and she, because she is a queen, walks right up to these like biker punks, and he's like, "Have you seen a pig?" They're like, "Who are you calling a pig?" And it bursts out into a moderately police facilitated riot, which again is beautiful, and then it becomes mm-hmm. like why this film is great. It's like a li- like Gremlins two. It's like a live action Looney Tunes cartoon <laughs> of when just it just goes off the chain completely of this this like amazing um set piece which just ends up in a guy being thrown off like painting a billboard and a bucket goes in the air and it lands back down on her and it's just utter chaos and becomes a riot just because some old nice lady was asking if anyone's seen a pig yep uh let's go through what esme has had to go through (laughs) she missed her flight to get to the the competition where she could get the money to keep her home her husband almost died her husband, oh, that's true, I forgot even that. Her husband almost <laughs> died. Her pig is gone. Her mm. clothes are stolen. Mm. She has been dunked on. And her purse is now stolen. Oh, and God, then yeah, she's arrested. Yeah, she's arrested. They arrest her for this because, you know, ACAP. Um, oh, this movie mm-hmm. rules. This movie's very good. Um, 
So we, we see this sort of show business that Uncle Fugly is running with the apes. <laughs> Again, he's called Uncle Fugly. What a great name. <laughs> if, if, okay, like I said, my mom listens to this podcast. And I told her I was watching Babe Pig in the City. She was probably like, oh, it's probably just some, you know, family movie. Mom, this movie's insane. <laughs> this movie is like anarcho-communism. This movie is, is, is so... Oh, like I cannot wild. adequately describe this movie to people that haven't seen Babe Pig in the City of just like, what the heck is going on? This is why I spent so much of my life telling people to watch Babe Pig in the City to the extent that with the people in the Letterbox Discord, hello if you're listening, I was talking about it for so much that people thought I was joking. I was like, you need to watch this movie. So I was like, we're doing a watch party for Babe Pig in the City. Um, so I organised it and I said, I will write an introduction. So I wrote an introduction, which is, you can read on Letterboxd. Um, find me, Stephen Edge or Stephen Gillespie on Letterboxd. Is it just your review? Um, yeah. So that's that. So I, okay. I read that to 30 people turned up. It was great <laughs> to watch this. Nice! And this is how committed I was to Babe Pig in the City of, I built myself around the time zones of American people. So this watch started at 2am for me. Okay. So, which is why I think I got some people, because they're like, okay, I will follow Stephen to his, I mean, it was 1am, to his 1 or 2am Babe Pig in the City watch. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I am committed to this movie and to spread its weird gospel to the world, because it is it is like nothing else. I love movies like nothing else. I'm a, We've talked about, you and I, um, off mic, um, about the Texas Chainsaw movies. Yeah, all oh, the best movies. Well, I, I've I, again, I've only seen one, and I need to see two. But mm. one is the best movie ever. And I'm not a huge fan of Texas Chainsaw One, and I love Texas Chainsaw Two. Um, and I, I know it's not a better movie. I know it's not. And um, I watched Gremlins Two recently, and Gremlins One has a lot of um, love, and it's apart from the racist bits, it's a great movie. And Gremlins Two is a really is, good I'm, movie. I'm, Gremlins Two is just wild. I am such a fan of the the sequel, but different the what are you doing with this movie <laughs> and <laughs> babe two is that um my weirdest reference is it's also like guinea pig two that's a reference to like two people again being like uh. what a weird thing for a sequel um but i just love the let's take a known thing and let's just go strange with it and you can tell the producers were like you made what what is this? What do we do with this, George Miller? And the film flopped. And it's like, well, not surprised. Let, 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 let me put it this way. I don't think a kid watches this movie and enjoys it. I don't think no. any kid watches this movie and enjoys it. It is no, not a not kid's movie. Them. It's for me. It's for me. I am Babe, the exact Babe is a movie that can be appreciated by kids, adults, anyone. Babe 2, I don't even think anyone like below the age of 16 enjoys this like it, it feels like it should be rated r not for any yeah. content but it's it's so disturbing and not like disturbing in the sense of like there's a lot of violence but it's like this is so weird and messed up it is cinematically challenging <laughs> it's like it I really don't know. is and i don't but, know I, but then part of me goes like is this actually what kids want as opposed to what we think kids want because I think about the current slate of we're, we're about the same age I think about like what was on TV when you, we were younger and it was kind of crap and I think about what children's TV is now and like there's so much really cool anarchic strange surreal stuff out there that seems to be much more authentic like maybe kids do want Babe 2 maybe they do want Gonzo uh, uh, masterpieces I do I do think like we don't fully understand what kids want and like mm. if, if you want to talk about the sort of thing you're describing uh, the Amazing World of Gumball is an incredible show and perfectly fits this sort of like completely anarchic freaking 
out of body experience of strange <laughs> and funny and weird. But Babe isn't really Babe Two isn't even like that funny. Like I I I do agree with you that like maybe kids don't want this like saturated down sort of entertainment but i still don't think babe 2 is it <laughs> no i don't i don't, I don't I know I, I do agree but yeah you're right it's not like a funny film but my jaw was dropped throughout the entirety of the movie like and this is the fourth or fifth time i've watched it like recently um and it's just it's such an overwhelming experience of i don't know it has a visual wit that's very creative and it's just like yes. it is it is a film of spectacle yeah weird um, for a babe movie but yeah now basically i will so what happens is is in this show business thing they're performing for a children's hospital and babe is supposed to stay under a table where there's a hole in the table where his head pops out and it looks like he's supposed to be served ham and they have little cards that they play to the audience one of them just says like too raw and it's like what <laughs> what is the name of the orangutan that does the card bit in the show? Oh no, I knew this because I oh, I watched this this morning. Oh, this I... was my favorite part of the movie. Oh, you you go, you go. It's Thelonious Monkey. Yes. Oh, what a joke! Who what a is joke. this film for? Who is this film for? I, but I don't mean that in a bad way. But like, kids are not going to be like Thelonious Monkheads, being like, "Oh, like, look, that orangutan has the same name as like the best jazz musician of all time," which might be my hot take. I mean, um, jazz pianist, like maybe yeah. It's him or it's John Coltrane. They're the two. Yeah, best, I mean, as, in my as a saxophonist myself, um, and as my primary influence as a player, it would be John Coltrane. Um, which, of course, I would say that because like everyone wishes they're John Coltrane. But so yeah, he is my number mm-hmm. one. But that's only because I am a saxophonist. So that's where my loyalties lie. Then Miles is three, but I, I like Thelonious Monk. I think a lot more than a general amount of people that I talk to. Yeah, about Thelonious Monk is, is, is exceptional. Um, and when they real when I realized that his name is Thelonious and he's a monkey, <laughs> I was like. Oh, you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> but it's also, that's why I like this movie, because also this film understands that the, the name Thelonious given to a monkey is just, even outside of the, the jazz reference, it's just inherently funny. It's just funny yes. to hear the name Thelonious be said, and for this, like, very dapper monkey. <laughs> He's so Thelonious. dapper. It's just very, very funny. It's just baseline, like, and, that's and, just a funny conceit. Like you said, um, he, he, like, th- there's these three monkeys that live with Thelonious and... I can't believe I'm saying this name again, Uncle Fugly. (laughs) (laughs) And they've been sort of forced into these human roles of, like, wearing clothes and wearing wigs and stuff. Yeah. Um, And basically when they break out of it and go to their agrarian farm, the chimps don't wear the clothes anymore and just sort of hang around the trees. But this is something that Thelonious does enjoy, and it no longer becomes, Mm. like, he has to work this role in the society inside Uncle Fugly's room. I can't believe I'm fucking saying these words. Um, but this should be He becomes, does it for him. He does it for him. He does it for him. And it's... Ugh, this movie's really good. Uh, well, because like, it goes against, like, I have a lot of arguments politically about people being like, oh, you feel like socialism. You want it to be poor. And it's like, it's you want no art, etc. It's like, well, no, this is a sense of people making things themselves. So they want to make it. Like, you can look fancy and, and be nice, cause, but not because of, like, wider societal pressure and not because of, like risk and like scarcity has told you that it's good but like if you want to like dress up real smart you dress up real smart but you do it for you not because of society's whims exactly um yeah so the, basically this thing goes horribly wrong babe trick trips <laughs> Uncle babe, kills a man. babe kills a man he doesn't kill a man uh but <laughs> as steven wants to keep he ices him in cold blood by tripping him uh 
Uncle Fugly's torch lights his set on fire and burns down. Is this what Did- we have Le'Veon Rose playing? Yes. Well, no, it's <laughs> it's non non regretory end. It's yeah, not yeah, Le'Veon Rose. Yeah. I thought that's, that, I thought that's what that song is, isn't it? No, they're two different songs, man. Oh yeah, no, so I'm an idiot. Um, but you know, Edith Piaf. Yeah, it's yeah, it kind of all blends together. Um, but yeah, the the little mice are singing "Non Je Regrette Rien," which is just <laughs> wow. Um, as the stage burns down, now we skip like a day or two later, and Uncle Fugly's just dead. Yep. And, yep. It, it wasn't even like due to any injury sustained by tripping over Babe or like smoke inhalation from the fire that happened. He's just dead. He's dead. Like of a, of like a broken heart. It's, it's yeah, like episode three of Star Wars. He's just he, dead. He, he got lost fucking the will Padme. to live. Lost the um, will to live. And th- there's this shot. So he's brought out on this gurney and like led out by this ambulance. And there's this incredible cinematic moment of Thelonious Monk, like going through the hotel as he's like you can't climbing just over. Just call things. him Thelonious Monk. You can't just call him Thelonious Monk. Thelonious. <laughs> You're right, I can't... Oh, he's not Thelonious that'd Monk. A, that'd be a very different film. <laughs> but no, Thelonious is, like, climbing through the hotel, and it, like, mm. it's following him, and he finally, like, reaches, like, this massive, like... uh, What is it called? Like, stained glass window. Yeah. And he, like, looks out and watches his, his like, friend is led away dead, and he just turns around and says, like, into camera almost, I couldn't wake him up. What is going on? <laughs> these are the same characters that wax about how there is no yesterday, there is no tomorrow, only just today. Like these, like these, just like nihilistic, sad, downbeaten by society monkeys. And like every now and then, there's a moment of like real pathos, and it's it's lovely. And, and then you know what the mice are singing at this part? I cannot remember. Are you lonesome? Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Brighter Summer's Day is like one of my all-time favorite movies. So mm. I was like, yes. They're hitting me. Yeah. Okay. Um, Out of nowhere, Ferdinand shows up. (laughs) Uh, Ferdinand, who tries to follow Babe to the big city, but doesn't realise that planes are not birds, so cannot fly them. And then it's implied, well, it's it's not implied, it's just pretty much straight on said, that he tricks some pelicans into just, like, carrying him the way. And they're like, oh, it's, you know, there's supposed to be hard things you can't fly. It's like, yep, whatever, bye. (laughs) And then just, like, drops down and just enters the film gloriously. Yes. Um, now, do you know who the pelican is that car- who voices the pelican that carries him? No. Jim Cummings. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh. Huh. Uh, voice actor legend Jim Cummings. <laughs> pelican. <laughs> We're gonna make you play a bit part for like a second. Yeah. Um, Love it. Yeah, he carries Ferdinand in his mouth. This movie. Um, and basically Ferdinand descends into the city and is like so overwhelmed by it that he just sort of like collapses on this building overhang thing and stays there for about 45 minutes and we'll get to him later. But like, he doesn't, (laughs) nothing happens after that with him. Yeah. He is completely ancillary to this entire movie. He's great. (laughs) He just, um, oh no, actually first he drops into a gun club. God, yeah, the Metropolis Gun Club where they all just, like, duck hunt him. And they're just, like, shooting the... Cra- and he's, like, Matrix, like, dodging the bullets and stuff. 
But again, with, with, with the politics of this film, like this is the right wing objectivist dream of a city. It knows that Art Deco is linked with objectivism and like unconstrained like free will, etc. It was like, you know, let's all have our guns. And it shows the horrible side of this. Like this is our wa- a wild gun club where we just all go off. And it shows it again in this like fully spectacle of madness of this wild gun club. But they just shoot at a duck and it makes you anti-gun. There you go. Love it. I it's the movie. Um, so to to get to um, basically at this point they realize they don't have any food because there's no humans yep. to care for them. Um, the the chimps decide to go out and get food. They break into a another hotel and steal a, a thing of jelly beans. <laughs> yep. Okay, and at this point, there's, like, these guard dogs by the hotel, and they get Babe to basically be bait for them. Yes. To distract them. Um, and the dogs chase Babe through this Venetian cityscape. Incredible. Yeah. Um, we it's never find out what happens where... to the... Yeah? It's great when he's running through this, like, scrapyard, and it all just, like, collapses, 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 in this, like, again, maximalist spectacle that just did not to be that cool, but it was it is that cool. Yeah. And, um... Basically, uh, what, what 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 goes on here? We 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 don't know what happens to the Doberman. No. But this movie was cut down from PG to G because of dog violence. Yeah. I think that Doberman died. Yeah. I want to see uncut Babe two. I do so want to see Babe two, the uncut director's mm. version. Oh. Um. But anyway, so the other dog is a bull terrier that continues chasing uh, Babe. Um, And basically, I I have to... I wrote down the full quote. I have to read this at one point. Oh, God, the way that he speaks is just amazing. Um, What's the name of the narrator again? He's a really popular actor. I should know this. Oh, I I can't remember. Uh, It's Roscoe Lee Brown. Um. Basically, Babe stops on this bridge and sees the bull terrier run towards him. Narrator says, Something broke through the terror. Flickerings. Fragments of his short life. The random events that delivered him to this. His moment of annihilation. A terror gave way to exhaustion. Babe turned to his attacker. His eyes filled with one simple question. Why? Which is just like the moment in Mad Max... Um, Fury Road when those flashback things are happening and Max just holds his hand out to stop the thing and like blocks a knife and that stops it um, there's yeah. just this good pairing because he just he just turns around and says why and he, he, he wins because of that it's so cool basically at this point the bull terrier runs into Babe so hard it doesn't even kill him it just sends Babe flying into the river mm-hmm. and then the dog tries to run towards the river but he so he's still got this like chain on him that yep. got connected to a wagon from the junkyard. Yeah, it's and like when he jumps mower. into the water, the wagon gets caught on a signpost and hangs him. Yeah. And then it falls down a bit and he is briefly drowned. And, and, and there's this and there's this dog hanging drowning. And it's not like the dog gets completely submerged in the water because his leg gets wrapped up in the chain, so he's held mm. vertically in the air, it's only brutal. his head dunked underwater. And I'm like, looking, watching this through my fingers, like, who watches this movie? <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah, but like, this is Babe. This uh, is Babe. 
Babe saves him. Babe saves the day. To Babe show, like... saves the dog. He he rolls this. He, he swims this boat over to like let the dog be able to breathe again. But I love this moment where all these animals, the monkeys, the dogs around the city, everyone is just watching this dog drown. They're like, sucks, suck. That's the way it is. Yeah, because that again, this goes back to my weird politics reading this movie. Everyone's yep. just like, that's the way the world is. The world is bad and it crushes you. And Babe goes, no, we can go out of our bounds. We can break. We can do good things. We can be good people. We can build a better society. And this is the scene that leads into him setting up a little, like, communist food system inside the um, hotel that ends in them all thanking the pig and thank the pig. The, the, what, the best line of the movie. No, the best line is still, that'll do, pig. But... Thank, thank the pig. Thank the pig. Close number two. Um, so basically, after the dog is saved, it's like, he, uh, I'm not going to kill you. Um, whatever the dog, whatever the pig says goes. Because he says, he like, I have a professional obligation to be malicious. Which, again, is how this film is written. And is like, very, like, high-fluting register and is so aware of it. And Babe's just like, what if you didn't? It's that sense of he's like, no, I'm yeah. just cruel. Like, what I, if you, what I haven't if written down. I have a professional obligation to be malicious. And Babe just says, you should change jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't be a cop. It's basically, it's, it's that thing. But like, how about you just quit? Yeah. And so basically the bull terrier convinces the jelly bean stash that the monkey stole to be delivered one by one to every, one jelly bean to every animal. Oh, there's a which beautiful is, bit where the monkeys, the dad monkey is just like, yeah, I know what you're thinking. We did all the work. We should get more. And the wife's just like, no. <laughs> and I'm God. like, yeah, hell yes. Um... Yeah, and the, the 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 sad thing is, like, the one jelly bean isn't enough to cure their hunger. Well, no, because they need to throw down the state. They can't just, like, this is, is there are the limits. Yeah, this but it's like they started to work together and they at least each got some substance. There's also, at this point, a, a sex worker poodle in a G-rated film, which is also... Yes. Wild. <laughs> and a very positive um, representation of sex work, um, which is, I mean, it's not... Out and out says it, but it's very, very obvious. That's what's oh, going it, on. It, it says, um, un, it's un, it's it's as unsaid implied as it could be. Yeah, it's completely unambiguous. You know what's going on here about what this poodle actually is and the way that it respects a sex worker and um, not humanizes, animalizes, obviously, but empathizes. It's really cool, really progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point the I can how do they, there's so much stuff. at this point the chimpanzee mom. Gives yeah. birth to twins. These yeah, there's this demon again, monkey Jesus looking babies. <laughs> yes. At the birth of their new, like, progressive society, we have these child born to light the way. But Babe is the real messiah here. We know that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. This part was very upsetting. At this point, oh, yeah. the... Uh, neighbors across the street who are bothered because they're listening to their aria and there's <laughs> dog noises coming across the street decide to call basically animal control SWAT edition yeah to break in and abduct literally all the animals in the hotel yeah because you know the, the the state does not want socialism it's this idea of being like we have set up a nicer kind of society like what if you don't what if you don't this scene is so violent it's so violent, but like it's, it's in got many, a really good in moment. many ways. 
It's got a really good moment, which is one of my favourites of the film. A, a, a good friend of mine, Ben, um, Benjamin of Letterboxd, follow him. He's terrific. He's the guy behind Japanuary and he's doing his um, South Korea summer marathon. You should join that. Um, what a terrific guy. Um, we're watching the guinea pig movies together at the moment, which is why I mentioned them earlier. Don't watch those films. The second one's kind of good. Um, so he he likes this film because I made him watch it, but there's a bit that almost broke him, which is how it treats the character Fleelick, who is probably my favourite character in the movie. Absolutely not. Um, oh, well, okay, but we'll get to Fleelick in a second. We need to go over some of the other stuff that happens in the but, scene. No, but Fleelick... that's so key to the... Because they take all the animals, but they refuse to take Fleelick. And Fleelick is a wheelie dog. Fleelick is a, is a dog that has um, wheels um, in place of where his back legs would be or have been, um, presumably. Well, no, no, he, he has the legs, but I believe he's like paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah. His legs just kind of hang out, but he can't use them. It's a, but again, it's a great moment of representation. He's not defined by that. He's not limited by that. In fact, the film shows that that is a great thing for him. At the end, he just like loves that he could like ride on cars, which is really really cool. Um, yeah. But that sense of like what the state or what the like capitalism thinks is like the kind of people or animals that should be in society and are worth looking at, and then it rejects this thing, and then that thing is the thing that then brings about their end. It's beautiful. Yeah, but so so basically they, they take all the dogs and put it in, yeah. but then they take Fleelick and they're like, wait, this dog is like on wheels. And they, I'm not even joking, they throw it out mm. of the van. Yeah. What? The, the cruelty of these people, of, of the state and its operators at this point, yeah. Um, The worst one for me, and like I was literally getting physically upset at this part, Um, I'm getting upset about it now is uh, Thelonious Monk is standing there holding mm. his really, like, it seems like they're really close, like, buddies, goldfish. Yeah. He's holding this goldfish bowl, and he's just kind of, like, standing and watching, and basically this one SWAT person comes up to him and is like, I ain't gonna hurt you, I ain't gonna, like, you know, the, the drill. Yeah. But then, of course, out of the side of his eye, Thelonious realizes that there's another yeah. cop there with a net and, like, slams it down on his face so hard that he drops the goldfish bowl and then the goldfish starts slowly choking to death in the air. I I was... <sighs> I didn't know how that was of how that was going to get resolved. This scene is so weird. There's very little music. Mm. It's not it's even tr- like there's tragic. this like sort of... It, it, there's not even, it's not even like there's this like really sad music going on or this really like bombastic intense music going on. It, it, it's sparse? And makes me have to deal with the reality of... Uh, how am I saying the reality of the situation in this sort of scene? <laughs> but the sort of reality of what's going on more than just like sort of this like, oh, it's the emotional ending of the second act of this film. Yeah, it, um, it brings a weird stakes. And actually, to go back to that goldfish moment, that's again another like bit of the film's politics about in, in internalized hierarchies. I love that these human surrogate apes have a pet... And then also care about their pet in that way of like the systems of oppression create systems of oppression inside those systems, which again is why that person doesn't want to share the beans equally. There's that sense of hierarchical society just inherently creates further hierarchies and further hierarchies and further hierarchies. People will learn to love their captors and love their imprisonment and thinks that fish is his friend, etc. There's some clever stuff under the surface here that I just love. Yeah, thank you for joining us on our communist podcast. Which <laughs> Hello! I'm not against it. Like, <laughs> I'm glad we're going all in on this, but it's just like, wow, this is a communist movie. Comcast, I think it's called. Um, Comcast? <laughs> That's an American thing, right? They're like, they make internet. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 
But yeah, this is this. I said this is a communist movie, not a yeah. com. Yeah, but this is a Where? communist podcast, a Comcast. Oh. Okay, I'm sorry. I had to get that literally spelled out for me. Okay, yeah, <laughs> sorry, it was a terrible joke. I apologize, <laughs> but that's why I'm here. But this goldfish starts like slowly dying on the floor, and like Babe tries to go over to save it, but then someone like puts a rope around Babe's neck, and then. <sighs> The babe gets thrown out the window and then gets almost hanged until, like, mm. the person that has him hanging gets thrown out the window as well. At which point, Babe goes up and, like, the goldfish... I swear that goldfish was going to die. I really mm. I really thought it was going to die. But Babe picks it up its mouth and spits it out into the river below. Um, yeah, where it will probably die, to be fair. That goldfish cannot survive there. <laughs> but, no. Yeah. And I was like, I think Venetian water is salt. Yeah, that that's gonna die. But you know, saved for that's me. that's against the point. Yeah, that was very upsetting. And then the worst part of the whole scene happens, where yeah. basically Fleelick is like, "I'm not giving up my friends," and oh, bites the so much, um, the like gown of the main uh, dog catcher person. Yeah, SWAT cops. And the door. Cl- I'm gonna. Ha- I don't know how I'm gonna have to describe this. The door closes. He's still, it, it like catches the jacket inside yeah. it, and the dog is still biting onto it, and the car starts going, and and Ferdinand and Babe are like, oh, and Ferdinand shows up at this point. Yeah, love him. Um, and Ferdinand and Babe are like, Fleelick, let go, but Fleelick's like, desperate to get his friends back. Yeah. Um, and it's just holding onto this jacket, and it's like they're going faster and faster and faster, and cars are starting yeah. to go by, and I'm like, oh my god, Fleelick's gonna die. And then um, the car makes a really hard turn, and Fleelick goes like flying. And uh, basically, this whole intense emotional scene closes on this like zoomed in close up of Fleelick's like broken wheel sort of spinning uh, on its axle. Uh, and then and it I'm like. Just... What is this movie? <laughs> it's a really beautiful moment. It's it's so well done. It's so emotive and it shows how much they've built up that character. Like, I know that Ben felt betrayed by this moment because he's like, how dare you do that to Fleelick? But I was like, that shows the strength of this film that it makes you care so much about this character. Um, it also shows Fleelick in heaven and implies that heaven is a better existence. That bit's a bit dark. Anyway. Um, I didn't like that. Yeah, that, bit's, that bit, I don't like that bit. It's like, that's grim. Um, that aside, perfect film. Um. Yeah. Okay, so this is where I gotta be honest with you, Stephen. Yeah. The third act kind of loses me. Yeah, the third act's ridiculous, but it is, it's... It, it's, it, it, it it's still fun. It. it has interesting thematic elements, but it goes on way too long. And so it I'm does, gonna kind does. of go a bit quicker through this. Um, so, basically, Babe, Tog the Monkey, Fleelick the Dog, and Ferdinand the Duck. Am I missing yeah. one? They uh, basically go on a smelling adventure throughout the city, <laughs> while at the same time, Esme has her court appearance where she gets found not guilty by Pigman. Yeah. Um, oh, God, this film. They break into the animal control of the mouth. They escape across the building into the hospital that they were in before. There's what a really it? good line, though, where um, they break him out of the place, and they... I forget who says it, but I wrote it down. They just said, why couldn't they just leave us be? Mm. Right? Yeah. They don't want you to... They don't want it to work. They will make it not work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do really like when they're walking through the children's hospital again, and the kid's just like, hey, Thelonious, and Thelonious is like, sup, my man. <laughs> do you like jazz? Um, so then, then we get to the weird, like, Baroque, like, almost like Eyes Wide Shut level strange cabal party that's happening. Yeah, okay, talking about Eyes Wide Shut. So, <laughs> when the Metrograph opened, Noel Baumbach hold, held a yes, double screen. Yes, I was going to mention this. And the way he wanted to hold it was the double feature of Bay Pig in the City and Eyes mm. Wide Shut. I had that noted down for a thing to say later. Yeah. Which, at first I was like, you did what? What? Yeah, but why, it's would these, you, these why would you show a masterpiece these, next like, to an okay film? Darkly cynical movie that a dark, darkly cynical like urban landscape where control overall is the most important thing. And it's like, wow, Bombeck, yeah, you did a pretty good job there. <laughs> yeah, Bombeck knows movies. Um, see, so yeah, shocker. We, we, we get to this this weird broke party where Emma just up. It has my favorite moments in the film, which I pause to show to Emma. She's seen the film before; she loves it. Um, but that moment where. Everyone's freaking out because um, Hoggett's arrived, the animals arrived, and they're causing chaos to try and like end this party to save the pig. And there's this lady that's just overwhelmed by it. Um, and <laughs> Thelonious is sat next to her, um, like sipping champagne. And she looks around to who she presumes is her partner to be like, oh, this is too much, and sees that it's an ape and just freaks out. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Um, there are so many weirdly brilliant moments i i do think the scene just goes on way too long it does and... it does it does they swing for too long it's just like this going backwards and forwards it's it gets a bit kiddie in a pejorative way um as opposed mm-hmm. to being gloriously just like childish yeah no i agree um but there are good moments inside the set piece still there's been yeah. this big like tag on uh fugly's suit that somehow <laughs> esme ends up inside um yeah, that says do not pull and it's just kind of like this weird part of his costume this whole time. But yeah. during this sort of like fight to get to Babe as she wants to get Babe back, um, someone pulls the sign and basically the pants inflate to like the point where she's like flying around the hotel this party is held in. Uh, it's wild. Um, and the other favorite moment is uh, cutting to the end of this movie. Oh, another part, though, real quick before that, is they set up this joke of, like, there's this tower of chandelier. Yes. That I've, keeps I've, on, like, this guy keeps on, like, trying to save. The champagne and, flutes, yeah. Well, not flutes, they're chalices, aren't they? Um, like, this, you, you assume the joke is, like, this guy keeps on trying to stop it, but, like, it still ends up falling. Never ends up falling. I know. Instead, he gets, like, smashed in the face. I had misremembered <laughs> it as well. Because I was like to Emma being like, oh, no, the joke is it falls at the end. And it just doesn't. I was like, I had misremembered that joke. The joke just doesn't happen. That's even better. <laughs> um, but anyway, when when all the balloons fall, uh, the Phantom Fred, sh- like Phantom God, what a movie! Mm. Where does Phantom Thread rank in your Paul Thomas Anderson rankings? Um, I don't know. Like top top half, definitely. It's, it's a phenomenal film. It's number one, but that's besides the point. No, Punch Drunk Love is my favorite. Um, but Phantom Thread is. Oh is- yes, Steven! <laughs> I think Punch of Love is way underrated. It is. It's, it's a perfect film, generally. Second or third with There Will Be Blood, but Phantom Thread is my number one. Yeah, it's a great film. Um, 
Paul Thomas Anderson, so good. I am so yeah. sorry. We need to get on. Um, yes. <laughs> so this, uh, the chandelier also falls, and all the monkeys were on the chandelier, and the baby monkey is still up on the chandelier, uh-huh. and then the baby monkey falls, and Babe realizes it and says like Thelonious, because Thelonious is right under where it is, and Thelonious like catches the monkey, and the chimps go over to Thelonious and are like, "Thank you, Thelonious," <laughs> and then he's like, "Thank the pig." Yeah, thank the pig. Thank oh! the pig. What a moment. Thank the hero of the revolution. You know, like, he is the spearheaded thing that brought around this revolution. Thank the pig. Yeah. The pig that we need. Um, And basically goes back to the farm. Yeah. Um, and it a does basically like a, like a where they are now sort of montage. <laughs> Which uh, is very funny. Flelik now responsibly hooks himself onto cars and chases them. Doing it because he wants to do it. Yep. Um... The uh, the owner of the the pet hotel, which I haven't talked enough about her. She is great in this movie. Yeah, but she looks like a chicken run character. She really. Oh my god, yeah. Um, she uh, ends up on the farm. Thelonious is helping uh, tend to the clothes with Esme. Cromwell gets the well working and just such seizes a the means of production. Hell yes. Um... The bull terrier marries the sex worker poodle, yep. at which point they have puppies, and then yep. the sex worker poodle bails. Yeah. And single father win Pitbull uh, <laughs> just goes with it. Good yeah. father. He's, the, he's like, you should be mean. They're like, we don't want to. He's like, fine. <laughs> I, I'm a good father. Preach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the movie ends, and I'm like, what a movie. And then oh, Randy Back Newman music comes on. I'm like, this is strange. And then Peter Vitt, Gabriel voice comes on. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I think that won an Oscar. I think the, the song won. It got nominated. Oh, did it not win? God damn it. Um, you know what? Let me see. 1999 Oscars. Just because just I know whatever the winner is will make you mad. I mean, original songs are always like, I don't. I don't really have any skin in the game i don't really care but this song is actually cool. it's not it's not a terrible win it's when you believe from the prince of egypt which is okay. a pretty incredible movie there you go i'll let it have that um one of the nominees though was diane warren i don't want to miss a thing from armageddon steven how, how do you feel about that um that movie is bad i like that movie i mean it's, it's no i also kind of like it but it's bad <laughs> it is bad um we need we need Diane Warren to get an Oscar though. But Steven, I think that's Babe Two. Yeah, it's Babe Two. Um, so, so to finish this off, I guess because we've talked about Babe Two for so goddamn long, <laughs> we gotta rate and review this thing. So, Babe One, thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up. Thumbs up for me. And out of four, what would you give Babe? Three, three and a half. You gotta pick one. Because I, I don't know if I, I... This is why I hate... I, sorry, Roger, but... but what, wait, what did I give the Godzilla films? Because it's better than both of those. You gave them two and a half and a three, I think. Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's a really good um, family movie. So three and a half. Babe, great movie. Okay. And I'd give Babe one a four out of four. Now, uh, Stephen, I'm just curious here. Babe two, Pig in the City. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, thumbs up. <laughs> like... Uh, and, uh, out of four? Five. <laughs> and I will give it three and a half out of four. Um, both very good movies in completely different ways. Oh, yeah, utterly wild. 
do you have time to do a quick uh, shouting out some things that you watched this week that you um, enjoyed? Yeah, very, very quickly. Let me just like check up because I've been I've not been watching that much um, recently um, for me, at least, because uh, work has been very intense because of exam season, because they've replaced exams with teacher mm. assessment. Um, so, yeah, sucks to be a teacher right now. Shout out to my teachers out there. Um, hey, mom. Re- recently, that was good. Hello. Um, oh, actually, I will plug. A, I watched this movie called Godzilla recently. Um that is very 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 good um because i'm gonna plug um a thing um the i was gonna make sure we did this at the end yeah 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 i've started a pod inspired by this actually so thank you dylan for inviting me on my pal calvin from the twingeeks.com um just reached out being like would you like to do a kaiju podcast i'm like yes (laughs) because he listened to this episode yeah 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 that was generally like we should we should do this um so you can find the podcast um ranking the monsters and our first episode, we're gonna. What we're gonna do is we're gonna rank every kaiju movie ever made. I'm a kaiju fan. Calvin is kaiju curious, as I've put it. Um, and our first episode covers um, Godzilla. It, it starts with a 15 minute essay by me on Godzilla, which is very research and I think very good and worth listening to. Um, and then we talk about Godzilla, the King of the Monsters re-edit, and Godzilla, the um, 1977 Italian re-edit, and we rank them. Mm-hmm. And our second episode is going to be it- on Cloverfield and Pacific Rim. Not on a uh, raids again. Oh, we're going to get to that soon. Don't worry. Um, okay. But, you know, we're, we're doing uh, every kaiju film. I'm very curious, because I don't know your thoughts on either of those movies. I don't want you to actually tell me so I can enjoy listening to it. Um, I'm not going to. But those are some interesting movies, is the way I'll put it. Um, it's an excellent podcast. I loved the first episode. Um, Thank so you so much. Fans yeah, of this I had podcast, a uh, go, go listen to it. Um, anything else this weekend you want to shout out? Um, looking back, um, I've not really watched that much that I loved, really, unfortunately. Um, oh, actually, um, I am going to shout something out. Um, you should go to anotherscreen.com, who are doing this really wonderful online festival um, called um, For a Free Palestine, Films by Palestinian Women. Um, oh, and it nice. is a collection of short films um, through, the first one I watched was in 1985, and some of them are a lot newer. Um, so just short films by female Palestinian filmmakers, um, some very much about Palestinian rights, um, some very much kind of like tertiary to that. They're all like deeply inherently political because of the state of Palestine. Um, but it's just a really cool thing and a really important thing and a great thing to support and to look into right now. And there are donate links on there, obviously. And there is like wider context about the importance of that. So that's my recommendation. Great. Thank I did not know about that. So thank you for shouting it out. Um, For me this week, I went on an Agnes Varda binge. I oh, watched four of her movies. I watched Murmurs, which... Wonderful. Uh... Your wife or partner or I don't know what the relationship between yeah, you and uh, my partner. fiance. Um, fiance. Yeah, well, I've, I've put off watching that film because we should watch it together uh, because we watched um, Faces Places together. Yeah, and actually, it works as a perfect like prequel to Faces. Uh, I mean, Faces Places works more as like a perfect sequel to Murmurs. Mm. And if she's doing her uh, sort of like work on like um, graffiti and modern yes. uh, street art and stuff, that is the best movie for it. It is. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. why we've been not watching it. The depth reason. and detail and understanding she goes into, like, understanding the people that made this and the cultures that made this and, like, why they made this and what it means to them. And it's oh, which it's wonderful. Agnes Varda is, is the best of that. I love her documentary work so much because I think her, she has so many gifts as a filmmaker. But for me, her greatest gift is her curiosity and her want to know more about the world and to interrogate the world. It's why her Black Panthers documentary is so good. Because she just I cannot wait talk. to watch that. She's, she's just, yeah. She is so fascinated by the people around her and what makes them tick and, and just uh, uses her platform. Talking about platform people though. around, uh, Gleaners and I is another perfect example of that, of just her following mm. people that just sort of like, uh, I mean, it, 
clean is not a word that I think I hear a lot in America, but it's sort of like um yeah. You you go to like trash bins or like stuff that was not farmed by people that are just going to be thrown out, and like that's where you sort of get your food from. Yeah, the movie is so cool because it, it creates this like metaphorical framework between what's a glaneur, which is the term in French, and what is a modern day yeah. gleaning, and it's yeah, it, that is one of my all time favorite films. Yeah, same. Um, and I also watched Jane B by Agnes V, which you haven't seen. Also, I have not. Which you should, because it was probably my favorite one this week. And the last Agnes I watched, um, Le Bonheur. Le Bonheur, which which again, I will plug my podcast episode where I defend that movie, um, which shouldn't need defending, but it did on that episode. That's ridiculous. Although, to be fair, like I said in my review, this is a movie that I feel inherently against. But the way it's presented and understood by Varda makes it go from something that I would get kind of repulsed by and uninterested in to something that is emotional and interesting and entertaining. It is one of the cleverest films I've ever seen in my life, the way in which it makes this deeply feminist and informed feminist point about how men will use the idea of like sexual liberation and the patriarchy will consume that and use it and abuse it about like power dynamics and it tells that just through like a color change at the end of this it gives you an ending you go that seems to undercut what i thought this film was and then there's this beautiful color change about seasonal imagery you're like ah that's because okay beautiful wonderful that probably the most intense emotionally and terrifying color change in movie history Mm. besides my other film that i watched this week black narcissus with sister ruth at the end Mm. uh which i don't know if you know this about me but the archers are probably my favorite filmmakers of all time besides maybe they're brilliant brilliant. yeah Uh, I, i love the archers black narcissus is one of the most perfect incredible masterpieces ever and it's fourth best of their works it is a great film it has a it's got some some good racial stuff in it it's also got some bad stuff in it but it's mostly the way i sort of look at it is it's just sadly sort of the studio system of the time that's like the challenge for actors in this day is to put on brown face and yes to pretend to be another race but the film itself the message and understanding as far as the racial dynamics go, is wildly progressive. And that yeah. that means more to me than sort of being like what the studio system was doing at the time. Which no, I, 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 I think it, it's a fabulous it, film. And I think we should, in when we're critiquing this movie, should be like, it's using brown face and that is not something that is good. Yes. But at the same time being like, this is a movie specifically about imperialism and the controlling of other races and yeah. other faiths and religions and what that sort of repression does to both the people that are forced into it and even the people that force it. And, like, I love modern films about colonialism, obviously, and, like, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. I think it's one of the most important recent films made, mm-hmm. and it's just such an underseen um, masterpiece. And I think the thing to remember with The Archers is, this film is old. This film is, like, made during the Empire? Oh, Yeah. Like, like we, you guys were still bold. occupying India exactly. while this movie was made, and I cannot and believe that needs to be talked about in relation to that film. Of like, this is it's so easy to it's not easy to it's still difficult to because it still resisted to critique imperialism now. Um, well, 
British colonialism, at least, because there are obviously still sure. empires going. Um, and, you know, the legacy of the British Empire is a very real thing. But to make that film at that time from those filmmakers who were somewhat glorified propaganda filmmakers um, for other films, for the, beautiful this is the films. the interesting but... thing is that the wonderful thing about the archers is it's this dynamic of Powell is this classic romanticist British man. Mm-hmm. And then Pressburger comes in and he's this immigrant humanist person and this sort of melding of the two is able to give a film that is just classically british enough to be distributed yeah and at the same time wildly progressive anti-establishment english Mm. to still hold up in the modern day yeah and um i think you're going to get to powell's best movie later i believe which one peeping tom oh that's not my favorite. Oh, it is mine. It is mine. I know it is your favorite. When I say it's not my favorite, I'm saying it's only a four and a half out of five when <laughs> almost all his other movies are fives. So, you yeah. know, it's just it's just a matter of, like, you could rank the archers in any direction and just be like, okay, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. What is your number one of interest? I'm assuming it's the same as mine. Oh, it's Red Shoes. It's Red yeah, Shoes. Good. Yeah. Red Shoes is, like, not only my number one archers, but possibly my number one favorite and best movie ever it's like, it's phenomenal and at the same time i think life and death of colonel blimp and a matter of life and death are both in my top 50 if i Breath had comes. to rank it's, they're just incredible and mm-hmm. uh we need more people they're not like unknown filmmakers but compared to like the orson well, wells or something like you know famous they are more spoken about in Britain. I think A Matter of Life and Death is like a huge part of like Britain's cinematic like pride. But A Matter really of Life translates. and Death isn't streaming in a single place in America. Yeah. yeah. It's not it's, yeah. even rentable in America. I only can watch it because I bought the Blu-ray on Criterion, which yeah. everyone literally should do. It is a movie that is so thoughtful and beautiful, but at the same time, very childish and appropriate for everyone. Brilliant film. I, I want to give a final shout out to a Pressburger film, Paul Pressburger, this bit even less seen. I didn't think it's that great movie, but it's so cool. Um, A Canterbury Tale. (gasps) Okay, so this week, this week, we were supposed to review A Canterbury Tale as a fill-in episode, Ah. but then Nick couldn't. It was supposed to be me and Nick doing A Canterbury Tale because it was the archer that we hadn't seen and wanted to see the most. Well, I will will spoil a bit of A Canterbury Tale. Um, You know that thing at the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey that was like, Stanley Kubrick, you're a genius? Uh, The shot of the planet the shot of the bone going up oh okay sure and it comes into a spaceship yeah what if palin pressburger did that in the 40s are you kidding me i am not kidding you. i just want to watch a canterbury tale and it's the opening of that film the rest of the film is fine it's kind of hilarious it's about something glue in someone's hair um it's a very silly movie what (laughs) yeah silly movie yep 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 look the thing is i would just trust i trust them with literally anything they want to do but yeah, um, it, tra- it transitions from Chaucer age to wartime Britain in the same way that Kubrick does 20 years later. You're fucking kidding me. Heck yes. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that'll be all of us for us that'll today. We spent, that, <laughs> we spent two and a half hours on these movies and I, I don't regret a second of it, Stephen. Thank you for Thank coming you on. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure. You can find us at Great Movies Pod on Twitter at Letterboxd. Uh, you can uh, find our podcast artist Scott Brady on Twitter at S Brady Artist. Um, 
Stephen, do you have a letterbox or a Twitter for your new Godzilla cast? Um, if you just go to thetwingeeks.com, um, you can okay. find it there because it is run through them. A really terrific film website. Um, they have a podcast. Well, they've got three podcasts, and so we are one of them. So there's the um, the Daydream cast, which is about video games, which is really, really good. Really, really good. And they've got um, the Twin Geeks cast um, with Calvin and David. Um, and Calvin is the mm-hmm. co-host with me. Um, uh, Calvin Kemp, also on Letterboxd, um, co-host with me on the Ranking the Monsters podcast. Yep. Um, and if you want to find them on Spotify or anything, you can yes. search them at all Ranking that, the Monsters. Yes. So that'll be all for us. That'll do, Stephen. That'll do. Thank you very much. And when I go to the movies, I am that person on the screen. I am having vicariously an experience that happened to someone else. And that makes me a better person. That to see good films and to see important films is one of the most profoundly civilized experiences that we can have as people.